I'm Larry Bishop, and you're listening to the World is Wrong podcast. We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about tough guys don't dance. Keep dancing. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Welcome back to season three of The World is Wrong where we celebrate films and film artists the world is wrong about. I'm one of your hosts. You know me. I'm Andras Jones. And I'm the other host. You know me. I'm Brian Connolly. Hello. And we're back. We're back. I don't know. The One of the top five films of the 1980s? Definitely. Yeah. Uh, maybe top three. I don't know. Depends what you think about Empire of the Sun. <laughs> I like Empire of the Sun. <laughs> I love Empire. I'm saying it's up. It's one of the top films of the eighties. Uh, no, but this is a very. This is a long way from Empire of the Sun. We're doing tough guys don't dance. Uh, and uh, I've loved this film since I saw it when it came out. Yeah. How about you? Uh, I was too young when it came out, but when I first saw it on VHS about twenty years ago, I was in love with it instantly. Yes. And uh, we should say it's Norman Mailer's Tough Guys Don't Dance because he wrote it, directed it, and it is, it's got the Mailer stank all over it. <laughs> and speaking of having the Mailer stank all over it, uh, we, we're kicking this, this, uh, our season three off with a very, very exciting uh, guest, expert, expert guest. Yes. Yeah, tell us tell us about who's uh, going to be joining us. For yeah, this episode, right? uh, Justin Bozong will be here, and I've known the Justin Bozong. <laughs> he wrote the Cinema of Norman Mailer film is like death, a book all about Norman Mailer's films and the films he directed. And uh, check it out; you can get it on Amazon. Uh, and he's a guy I've known for a while. Uh, it's funny how we met uh, was through our mutual obsession of Jerry Lewis. So he definitely has his. Uh, his soul is in the right place where the world is wrong, just like just like us. Like he appreciates things that a lot of people don't. Like Norman Mailer, Jerry Lewis. Who's the? I, I wonder who else he'd want to include in there. Who who would you say would be? Are there other touchstones for you that you know that you guys have connected on? Like, are you also both big Weird Al <laughs> fans? Everybody loves Weird Al, though. The world's not wrong about Weird Al. Yeah, not everyone. Uh, I know someone. I don't know. Who really I feel like he he's just one of those people that like I've circled. Like I I talk to every little bit like i'll circle back with a question or i I showed him my movie or uh you know he's just a great guy uh he's he supplied me with all the jerry lewis telethons to watch so like i'll thank him for the rest of my life uh but he is a norman mailer as filmmaker expert so he is the right person to do tough guys don't dance here with us and he also recorded the unadvertised commentary track for the vinegar syndrome release of tough guys don't dance it's a great commentary check it out and he's going to be joining us to dive deeply into this film we we it's I'm pretty sure we couldn't find a better guest to talk about Tough Guys Don't Dance than Justin. I agree. Well, then uh, let's just let's get into it. I'm going to play the clip from the film. There's too many to choose from, but this one's pretty nasty. So (laughs) enjoy it. And then we'll come back and talk about this uh, just misunderstood masterpiece of a film. Great. 
There might be spoilers. There might be spoilers. There might be spoilers. Darling, when an attractive man and woman go on a trip, the fear of disenchantment is always lurking. Jessica, I'm not bored. Not bored at all. Well, darling, I am. But remember why we're here. Is Daddy mad at brand new Red Hot Mama? Is Mama being careless? I said I wanted to go to this place on the map, Provincetown, the very tip of the little finger of Massachusetts. Now it's a matter of waiting, looking at one another, right? No action, right? That's what you get for trusting a map. Here, here. Won't you join us? Well, as a matter of fact, you may have seen me before. I made a number of movies. Oh, God, let's not start blowing that trumpet again. I'm proud of it. I made many notable films. Jessica, must you let all the kittens out of the bag? Lonnie, if we can't let it hang out here, where else can we? Let it hang out. I made X-rated films. Triple X-rated. Now I'm in real estate, Santa Barbara. Lovely place. Fine homes. Here, there's nothing but shacks. Some of them are interesting. We're ferried over from Helltown. Helltown? Oh, do tell us about Helltown. It folded. <laughs> Wouldn't you know? 150 years ago, out there, across the harbor, a mile, whores, whalers, pirates. Pirates? In New England? On a moonless night, they'd build a beach fire. Incoming boat would mistake it for the lighthouse and run aground, and these pirates would plunder it. Orgies of plunder. And they floated all that bedlam over here. In certain houses, you can still hear the cries of slaughtered sailors. He's cute, isn't he, Lonnie? Cute. Tell us a joke. What makes surgeons happy? What? To cut people up and get paid for it. That's happiness. <laughs> you look like one of those method actors that plays a killer. <laughs> Don't say that. Why not? Because I could kill you. Would you do that to me? I don't know. I feel demented tonight. In what way demented? I could fuck your woman right in front of you. Only if the lady agrees. She'll agree. Come here, Jessica.
Would you let me speak in the name of decency? Would you let me speak? Tough Guys Don't Dance from 1987 was written and directed by Norman Mailer, based upon his novel of the same name. It's a Cape Cod noir that follows our anti-hero, Tim Madden, played surprisingly soulfully by Ryan O'Neill. Tim is a writer who isn't writing, whose story is told through flashbacks to his father played with gruff wisdom by Lawrence Tierney. As in classic noir, our protagonist finds himself the suspect of a crime he didn't commit during a night he can't remember, and is surrounded by people who appear to the world to be more respectable figures of authority than the schnook at the center of our story, but who are one by one revealed to be corrupt and compromised beyond measure. There's our acting police chief, Luther Regency, who also deals drugs on the side, played with sinister swagger by Wings Hauser. There's Tim's old college buddy, Wardley Meeks, played to the hilt by John Bedford Lloyd, whose wife left him for Tim before leaving Tim for someone who, when revealed, leads O'Neill's Madden to utter the now immortal lines... The mysterious woman at the center of all of this is Patty Lorraine, formerly Patty Erlene, who Tim first meets through a swingers ad in Screw magazine that draws Tim and his girlfriend, played by Isabella Rossellini, to engage in some couple swapping with Patty and her horny preacher husband, played by Penn Gillette. Patty is actress Deborah Sandland in a role that should have made her a star. But people hated this movie, and, as you know, the world is wrong. Justin, welcome to The World is Wrong. How is the world wrong about Tough Guys Don't Dance? Well, wow, there's so many, so many reasons why the world is wrong. But, you know, honestly, it's it's a much more complicated situation than the world just being simply wrong right it's a it's a situation of a filmmaker making a film who grossly over over anticipated a positive response from an audience but also that put too much faith in an audience and as terms of americans go that would you know that they would see a film and appreciate it for a high piece of art and really you know most audiences just want escapism and entertainment and the filmmaker here was delivering a, a deft piece of art and that's where it kind of all goes wrong so in a lot of ways the world is not wrong about the film yet it is okay well that's a it's a that's a perfectly confusing answer for a perfectly confusing film i would hope so <laughs> Uh, I think I can say that Brian and I both love this film unreservedly. Definitely. That's great to hear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, because when I first heard about it, I had seen Maidstone and Wild 90 before I even saw this. I was I had bootlegs of those. Like, this is back in college because I was on a Norman Mailer kick 
you know, as a lot of young men go through. And uh, but this was one that was hard to find at the time. And I got the VHS of it at I don't even remember some video store going out of business. And I had no idea what I was getting into. I really didn't know anything. And this is before, you know, memes of just certain parts of it were made by people who like to laugh at it and what have you. And when I watched it, I was just like, because it's so different stylistically than his early experimental stuff. It's like a real looking movie uh, in terms of a higher production and, and real and like uh, professional actors. And I was just like floored by it and couldn't believe that I hadn't really heard anyone talk about it other than a few people who were just sort of thought it was really campy and bad and they're wrong. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting because it's not that they're like, it's not that they're wrong. It's like, they're just not evolved. Right. It's like, it's some, <laughs> it's that, that's an insult them, but it's like, it's, we all have, you know, we all have our own set of criteria going into a film, right? Like, you know, we go in expecting something or we, you know, we need over years of watching films, growing up with films, you know, we all, we've come to come, we've come to regard, you know, uh, the cinema experience basically in a particular fashion. Like if we don't see something that we want to see or, you know, then we feel disappointed by it kind of, right. And I feel like this film does disappoints everything. <laughs> and that's the power of it, right. Is it kind of flips every convention on its ear, right. And, and asks you not only to stay one step ahead of it, but it also, it, it asks you to kind of look at cinema not from a cinematic point of view, but a literary point of view. Hmm. I, I, I heard you say that in the, the commentary section. Uh, you, you recorded a commentary for the DVD of this, correct? Right, yeah. The, the recent uh, Vinegar Syndrome uh, Blu-ray put out last year or whatever, I did the commentary and I helped put together some of the extras as well. And you were nice enough to share that with me and Brian. And I really... I wouldn't ask you to buy it. Uh. <laughs> I really liked the that way of thinking about it. And I think the film works cinematically as well. It, yeah. it The first time I saw it, it was just one of the... There's, there's certain films that until Stanley Kubrick made the film Eyes Wide Shut, there wasn't a word to describe or there wasn't a phrase to describe the feeling I get from these kind of films where it's just like, I can't get my eyes open enough to take in everything this movie is giving me. And so I'm kind of blinded by how great it is. <laughs> and yeah. that's... Or, or repelled by how bad it is, right? <laughs> yeah, but, I, but no, no. I'm thinking of like, there's a yeah. kind of movie that is just way more open. It's giving more then i mean you get this from lynch films you get this mm -hmm. uh from i get this from some like from nicholas ray films from douglas cirque films they're just turning everything up and this film turns yeah. everything up and it's so much more impressive i think because he's i mean although he is a director he is not a director of this kind of film and that he ends up, he lands in a, the place where uh, much more uh, experienced filmmakers like David Lynch or Nicholas Ray or Douglas Sirk get to. He got he gets there on kind of the first swing. I know it's not his first yeah. movie, but his first swing at this kind of movie. Right. Well, he. I mean, he was. A, I mean, 
you know, we live in a culture. I mean, he is of our culture, right? He was not only was he the not only was Norman Mailer arguably the most famous writer of his generation, especially in that 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 hit the apex in the 60s for sure. Um, but he was also a student of film, right? Before he want, you know, before Norman Mailer became a writer, he had had aspirations as a teenager of becoming a filmmaker. And so when you actually go through and read Norman Mailer, you see not only an overwhelming cinematic influence through his work, um, how he sets up a story, how he draws characters, um, how he creates tension, but um, it is, it, you know, he, he turns to cinema in his writing as his most potent metaphor. So he understands how film is, how film is experienced as how we basically take it as a culture and process it, right? So one of the most famous pieces of writing he ever did was in the early 60s. He, you know, when John F. Kennedy was running for presidency, um, he was down, I think it was down in the, in the, in the uh, polls and stuff. And Mailer put out this piece called Superman Goes to the Supermarket, which was published in Esquire, I think. And it basically was this mosaic that, that effectively equated Kennedy with a movie star. Like that's what, you know, so Norman Mailer's always kind of always had his finger on that pulse, right? That like, there's something that is fa fascinates us Americans is in our culture that, you know, we're so fascinated with the movie, the, the movie star and, you know, what it represents that it's transferable to every aspect of culture in a sense, like we equate our politicians with movie stars and there's, it's a vice versa, right? Movie stars are politicians, our politicians can be movie stars, as you can see, you know, ever so much in culture today, but even, even with something like Matthew McConaughey being toted as maybe running for president in the future, right? It's like, what qualifications does Matthew McConaughey have? To, to run the United States of America, right? it's a good question. But it but it's that it's that um, it's that trend that quality that people are attracted to, right? That that makes it sort of uh, you know it's a logical thing. It could oh well yeah he could run you know it's even though it's absurd right but it's that obsession with that image uh, that that Norman Mailer had his finger on and so um, yeah I think so that's why he's he's able to create the films he did even though he's just a writer because ultimately. What what's you know what does he have? Uh, what makes Norman Mailer think he can make movies? Right, that's that was always a criticism about him. Right, it's like you should stick to writing and not making movies. Well, actually, for our <laughs> listeners who may not be as up on, well, probably very few people are as up on uh, Norman Mailer as you are. If you're if you were to tr try and get someone up to speed on Norman Mailer, how would you how would you approach that? Um. Well, okay. So he was a post World War II writer who shot to fame in the late forties and early fifties with his book, the naked and the dead, which was a, you know, as a kind of his World War II experience more or less. And, you know, he, he just became a public intellectual became, like I said, a moment ago, the arguably the most famous writer in the sixties, because not only was he creating these intense polarizing works of fiction, but he was also dabbling in essays and nonfiction and poetry and and then of course he turned to film right so you know the 60s were a different time than they certainly are now you know we, we rarely see a writer or a public intellectual on tv as much as you know, we may see that on occasion like on something like your know, real time with bill meyer or whatever but we don't often see you know we don't have a dick cavett show now we don't have a, you know a david frost show on prime time or whatever so we don't get to see these sort of public intellectuals commenting 
um, on the state of the world. And that was always something that happened in the 50s and 60s. They turned to writers like Norman Mailer and, you know, like Gore Vidal and yeah. people like that to basically, you know, comment on the state of our American culture. And so that was pretty much how he shot to fame and became, one, you know, one of the most uh, influential writers of, of the last hundred years. And uh, had a distinctly sort of macho image. He, uh, he, he loved prize fighters, wrote a lot about prize fighting. Seems like he, car- he, he carried himself like a, like a prize fighter. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, if I, if anything I'm saying is incorrect. No, no. I mean, he, I mean, he was very much in that school of writers who shot to fame in the, in the era, uh, the fifties that were directly inspired by Hemingway, right? They right. Yeah. lived and died by Hemingway and Hemingway was of course of that same ilk. And so, yeah, he definitely carried himself in that way because, you know, he had come up as the generation he was from and also of the influence that he took from Hemingway, but also, you know, it, it, that also spiraled, especially in the 60s, out of his interest in philosophy. And uh, he was a big uh, reader of Heidegger and Nietzsche. And of course, Nietzsche, you know, famously said, live dangerously. You know, so that was that was his mantra, right? He wanted to, he was also uh, interested in phenomenology. So he was always obsessed with the concept of experience and documenting experience and studying experience. And I mean, a lot of these things also, are, you can see these, they're kind of once you watch Tough Guys Don't Dance a few times, you can actually see these things as themes pop up throughout the film in the characters in the characters situation. And his other films, because we're going to get into Tough Guys Don't Dance. Uh, right. I've seen. Uh, I just watched Maidstone, and I had watched. I, I don't think that he directed it. The Town Bloody Hall. No, yeah, he didn't. He did not direct. It was a D.A. Pennybaker. Got it. So, uh, but you want to just give maybe you and Brian can talk a little bit about the the films leading up to Tough Guys Don't Dance. Okay, sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious to see what. I mean, since we're we're positive speaking here, right? Does I'd love to hear <laughs> what Brian has to say about uh, Maidstone and uh, and Wild Ninety and Beyond the Law. Uh. I honestly, I don't remember Wild 90 at all. I know I've watched it and I get that mixed up with Beyond the Law. But I feel like those two, if correct me if I'm wrong, feel very more like a play in a way. They kind of have a Beckett thing going on there. It's just sort of like, uh, because Beyond the Law takes place in a police station. And it's very experimental. It feels very much like kind of what the New York experimental people were doing in the 60s. It has that kind of very loose, very handheld, uh, not so worried about the shots and how it looks and more concerned with just ideas and just, uh, you know, perform- very performance-based. And it feels very loose. Like, I'm assuming that a lot of it is improvised, even though he is a writer, that he probably didn't write a lot of that dialogue. And it's very much like in the moment working with these performers. Yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty, you probably hit the nail on the head there. Yeah, it's pretty, you know, he, he had, like I said, he'd wanted to make films since the 40s. So back in 1948, before he started, before The Naked of the Dead had released, he'd actually made this short film called, he left it untitled, but since then it's been redubbed Millicent's Dream. 
And basically, this is a, a little 10 minute single reel silent film that Norman made back in 1948, which was basically in the ilk of the sort of psychodramas of like Stan Brackage. And, you know, he, he was really influenced by Maya Darren and Kenneth Anger and, and people like that because he was a student of cinema. He had cut his teeth, uh, you, you know, he was an early uh, champion of Amos Vogel Cinema 16 in New York. We go to see these these independent films, these sort of short avant-garde experimental films in New York in the late forties and early fifties. Um, he was also, you know, he wasn't necessarily a champion of Andy Warhol's cinema, but he did see it as having tremendous merit, right? So it was the cinema, it was like cinema of Warhol, and seeing the stuff like that of you know Kenneth Anger brackets that really inspired him to to make want to make movies in the first place, right? And so. But the films also come out of his writing at the time, right? Because at this time, he had also really taken this radical turn in his literature where he was starting to write about, um, he just got like, kind of lost in philosophy. And it was, you know, it was, just, it was the 60s and it was, it was on, on the mind of a lot of people. So, you know, he started exploring the, the you know, this concept of like, you know, because direct cinema was coming out. You know, he had the the Maisels and and you know Jonas Meckes and these all these direct cinema filmmakers were putting out films and stuff. And it was the launch of the new American cinema. You know, and, and um, so you know he, but he became obsessed with the idea like that films don't portray reality. Like there's you know even a documentary doesn't actually portray reality because the only way you can really portray reality was in the instance you're observing it, right? So there's no way to actually capture it. Because when you do capture it, the second you do, it's gone. So it's kind of impossible to capture reality. So um yeah so that's I mean those are how those films sort of it was a combination of philosophy and the pursuit and the kind of capture of reality that he was really pursuing with those basic avant-garde films. Yeah, and I think that the the pinnacle of that is, of course, Maidstone, which really blends reality with fiction. Uh, and you wonder, like, yeah, how much are these actors aware of what's going to happen or going on or what is it all, you know, what's real and not building to that uh, very famous moment where he fights with Rip Torn and bites his ear. Uh, right. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, which is which is, I mean, you know, and I, it has become a weird iconic moment in this. I mean, I don't know if I, I, iconography is the right uh, way to look at it, but you know, it's it's certainly uh, the most memorable, one of the most memorable scenes in all of 1960s films. I guess you would say if you look at it on YouTube, it's viewed like over a million times or something. And so it's it's really amazing that that you know he had the. Uh, the ability to capture something like that sporadically, right? That because I think that I think the impact of that scene, though, is like the fact that, like, you know, it, it plays a, again on our American um, kind of in the zeitgeist of how we're obsessed with with things like that, right? I always in the, I wrote a book about Mailer's films, and in that book, I do talk about like how I equate the scene to the Zapruder film, right? It's how we can never mm -hmm. take our eyes away from the scene because it captures something. We think it's capturing something completely real. And it's compact. It's it's capturing something within the moment that we couldn't witness ourselves, and that's why we're so fascinated with it. Yeah, and those movies are now easy to find, thankfully, because Criterion put out a set of all three of them, which is great. Um, yeah. And what I find interesting about the conversation of him as a filmmaker is a lot of people like who don't study him like you refer to him as a writer 
turd filmmaker, but the fact that he made a short film in the late 40s shows that it's kind of a he's he was always both, just like how Orson right. Welles wasn't a theater guy turned filmmaker because he had made a short silent film way before right. Citizen Kane. And yeah. so he's always been this multifaceted artist. And it's not like Stephen King going to make maximum overdrive. This is an actual he was a writer filmmaker always. He's always thinking about movies. He's, you know, yeah. there's, it's not an accident that it happened once independent film became more of a thing and making movies became easier outside of Hollywood that he would partake in that. Of course he would. Of course. Oh yeah. He was, he was upset. He was fascinated with film his entire life. Even after tough guys, you know, you, you know, he was, a, he, he loved David Lynch movies. And, you know, even when like Lars von Trier uh, devised the whole dogma film thing, you know, he actually tried to petition uh, the Dogma, the Dogma 95 people to get Maidstone certified as the first dog. <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting that you bring up Lynch because I feel like there's a lot of weird Lynch stuff in Tough Guys Don't Dance. And yeah. I don't know. And like and like Blue Velvet came out in September of 86 Limited. Right. And then this movie's produ Tough Guys production was in the fall of the same year of 1986. And so yeah. I don't know if he actually saw Blue Velvet or not, maybe because Isabella Rossellini's in it that he got to see it or vice versa. But then also so much of this movie feels like later Lynch, like Wild at Heart in particular, especially with the Patty Lorraine character, the way she acts reminds me so much of Diane Ladd in Wild at Heart. And you have the Battle of Manti soundtrack in this movie and mm -hmm. just sort of that heightened acting that people totally accept in a David Lynch thing that for some reason in this movie was too ahead of its time and people couldn't quite get into. They just thought it was bad acting, but they're just right. Wrong. Well, um, well, but that's the, that's the thing about it too, right? Is so I, I the ways I understand it is like that. So he 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 did see Blue Velvet, but he never saw it. Like he didn't see it within the context of making the film, right? He didn't see it till later. And uh, John Bailey, the director of photography, they he said that he ne they never saw the film. They never talked about the film or anything whatsoever before because they started around Labor Day of '86 is when they started shooting Tough Guys in Provincetown. And but David Lynch and Mailer were friends. In fact, when Tough Guys, uh, when it was finished, they took it to the Cannes Film Festival. Mailer was a judge at Cannes that year. And uh, even though Tough Guys screened out of competition, uh, Lynch saw the film and thought it was a masterpiece. I mean, he's in, they, there's even in Norman's archive down in Austin, there's a, um, there's a, a director's notebook for Tough Guys. And in it, you can see Norman's taking all these quotes and he's going to use these in the marketing campaign. And one of them that he never actually never used for, for some reason, but he did include it was that this film is a masterpiece, David Lynch. And he was <laughs> going to use it in the marketing campaign. Right. But he never ended up doing it. But um, they were, yeah, they were friends. I think, you know, like uh, so many filmmakers of that era. Well, you know, it's interesting how audiences look at cinema and how filmmakers look at cinema. Right. I think there's a total dichotomy between the two, because I feel like, you know, like Lynch, like Kubrick, Bergman, Antonioni, Mailer included, even though, you know, he came to this, these ideas on his own without studying cinema, but they all had this kind of idea that film is dreamlike, like it's Eric, right? Like, so, you know, you know, Lynch is looking at it that way. Bergman's looking at it that way. Mailer's definitely looking at it that way, but also the sort of weird, crazy dialogue comes from the fact that, again, back to that notion I talked about earlier about him trying to pursue reality, right? So like for him, you know, movie dialogue was silly because like people don't talk that way. So it's like, you know, in our, in our lives, you know, we may 
moment to moment we live like you know in one moment we're living in a comedy and the next moment we're living in a high drama and then next minute we're living in a horror movie and we just are constantly shifting from states of emotions and states of reflections in our dialogue and stuff like that and so we wanted to he thought the dialogue in tough guys was really realistic because that was like <laughs> that was the way he saw like that was the way he saw reality being you know it was like people are constantly in these not in a flat line of, of emotion or a thought, right? It's always like we're jumping from horror to comedy in our life. He's like, that was super realistic. Shakespearean. It's, I mean, it's Shakespearean almost in some ways. It's delivered, right? It, it comes across as being Shakespearean to a certain degree. Yeah, I, I, in researching this, I came across that Robert Town is an uncredited uh, screen, screenwriter uh, accomplice on this in this film. Could, do you know anything about what that relationship was like? Well, yeah, so he didn't he didn't actually write any of the drafts. He was just kind of consulted, and ultimately it came down to the fact that Mailer said kind of over my dead body, like, I'm not letting anyone touch my script, right? He's like, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an effing writer. I'm Norman Mailer. You think I'm going <laughs> to let another screenwriter write my script? You're crazy. I mean, I've, I've read, I've read, they shot, they shot Tough Guys on the sixth draft, and I've read all five drafts, and there's there's no screenplay by Robert Town credit it's only kind of they give him a thank you at the end of the film so was it just the kind of thing where Mailer was just sharing it with him to get his his take get his, his point it, of view it was it was canon films it was it was canon films sharing it it was uh yeah it wasn't definitely definitely not not Mailer was never going to do that but I mean he he experienced all kinds of opposition no one really understood the script not even the actors so when they were when they were shooting the film, Mailer had to actually create a timeline with, I have it uh, within the film, which basically like laid out every scene in the script and showed you like where it occurred in the narrative in terms of the timeline. So it's like, you know, this, this takes place on day 26 and this scene at the end of the movie is supposed to take this in the actual timeline comes, you know, 45 minutes earlier in the film. So it's this weird shuffle dreamlike, uh, you know, almost cubist kind of thing. Um, so, but that helped the actors kind of, you know, be able to convey emotions or whatever, um, you know, through the in, interacting with the other characters, basically, right? Because it was a weird uh, sort of confusing screenplay to everyone involved. What were some <laughs> of the other obstacles that Mailer faced in making this? So, I mean, it was a, it was actually a pretty easy shoot, right? So the whole the whole backstory pretty much comes at the time he was. Um, he had been approached by uh, Jean-Luc Godard to write the screenplay for King Lear, for Godard's King Lear. And he basically uh, said, well, you know, any way I write it is going to, I'm going to get shot by an audience. So I'd rather, you know, I'll be in the, I'll be in it. But, you know, and so he, basically he got Tough Guys greenlit at Cannes on the condition that he participate in the Godard film. <laughs> and so they had a napkin deal and then, um, you know, Mailer went off to Switzerland to shoot uh, King Lear with his daughter, Kate, and there was a big falling out and Godard tried to make them shoot a scene, basically, which kind of implied that there was some sort of incestuous relationship between father and daughter. And Mailer hit the roof and basically left the, left the shoot. And but he, of course, still got to make tough guys. So um, that was how the whole thing got greenlit, basically. The only kind of real obstacle they had during the shooting was that, you know, they had a, a, a brief, that's a strike base with it when the union kind of shut them down. Cause they were definitely shooting uh, low budget. They were shooting non-union to a certain degree because 
that's why uh, if you look at the opening credits, you'll see John Bailey, director of photography, has a visual consultant credit and not a director of photography credit because it was non-union. Huh. Got it. The Teamsters were trying to shut it down, basically. And this was a weird time that I think people forgot that Golan Globus made these kind of weird films that weren't just Charles Bronson killing yeah. people oh, movies. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. They actually produced a Godard movie and a Norman Mailer movie, and they were trying to put be in the game of art house cinema. Oh, yeah. Cassavetti's movie. They made Love Streams around this yep. time. Raul Raises Treasure Island. Uh, a whole slew of interesting sort of uh, films that teetered. It wasn't all Ninja 3, The Domination. <laughs> as great as that movie is, you know, like it was it wasn't it wasn't these, uh, it wasn't that kind of film. <laughs> and it's it's striking watch this movie and i think i just take it for granted now because I'm, I'm younger but like the way the narrative works in this film where it is all out of order and it is more like how a book is laid out at the time i feel is kind of a big deal because there isn't a lot of movies that did that a lot of people kind of assume that started mainstream with pulp fiction of like that's the first time when a movie was like the beginnings in the middle and all this stuff and uh but that's what this movie does and it does it so well and i can see maybe at the time people being very confused by because the timeline of this movie is very crazy and but but i love it the way it reveals the information and a way it reveals sort of the characters is so smart and it must have been I imagine, yeah, very hard for an actor to kind of maybe wrap their mind around where they're at emotionally in the in the story. Yeah, it's it's a really complexly it's really complex and densely plotted out, right? Like it's it is a real craftsman film, and for, yeah. in that regard, right? But but you know, all that stuff kind of goes back to, you know, it, it, you know, you can see that sort of structure in film going back to like things like the French New Wave, right? Which is yeah. something that Mailer loved. He loved that kind of stuff, right? But again, that's that is how, I mean, that is why this film was a, a, in all intents and purposes a flop because Mailer put too much stock in the fact that he thought audiences would be able to understand that, right? He didn't, he, it's not a film for the popcorn crowd, but that is what he put it out to basically, right? And that was the hugest, that was the biggest mistake he could have made and it was effectively what prevented him from making more movies ultimately in the end. But um, but he always, he always had this, he always put that, he always gave audiences, particularly in this country, um, much more credit than they deserved. Right? He's like, he always, <laughs> even when he'd go on TV, like, you know, in the '60s, he would try to convey like really crazy, off the wall ideas. And like, uh, for example, like you know, there was one episode of Dick Cavett in the early '70s where he he's on talking about uh, the space program, and he's just relaying all these crazy things and like. Cabot's just looking at him like he's from outer space. Like and it, you, <laughs> you watch it and you're just like, oh, it, make, it makes total sense to me, right? But it's like people, they don't, they're not tuning in for that kind of stuff, right? They're tuning in for like to be entertained. And so of course Cabot's going to pop in and, and he's going to throw a one-liner in it, right? To, to, to sort of ease the tension. But he always overestimated media in terms of what it could convey to audiences in this country. And so I feel like this film is also an example of that, that issue as well. And how did uh, how did Coppola get involved in this? He wasn't really involved. He, I mean, he just put his name on it, basically. So, <laughs> so at the time, um, Tom, the producer Tom Luddy was Coppola's partner. Right? Al Ruddy, Al Ruddy, no. yeah, no, not Al Ruddy. Uh, Tom Luddy, Tom Luddy, <laughs> Tom Luddy, and Al Ruddy. That's confusing. Coppola, it's a nutty Coppola with his Ruddy's, so Luddy, Luddy and Coppola were buddies, partners, and had some ties together in so much rope. And so it was 
pretty much on the condition. Uh, it was actually another condition of giving the green light was that uh, Monaco Golan basically said, like, all right, fine, I'll give you this money. Uh, Norman can, Mailer can do this, but, you know, you put Francis's name on this. They thought, you know, given Francis's clout in the industry and, um, you know, just his, just his name as being recognizable would help the film along. It didn't, but that's all. <laughs> that's all. <laughs> so wait, this film was not successful? Are you saying that this film did not? <laughs> yeah, didn't do so well. It would, But, you know, he, he, but the great thing about it, right, was like, he, the thing he loved about it, right, is like it got, I feel like if memory serves, it got like nominated for a Golden Raspberry, uh, but it also got nominated for Independent Spirit Awards. And that, that was he, that's what he loved about it, right? Because he felt like that was the that was like for him was like the essence of real art was like that real real art should be polarizing. You know, like a bad yeah. film is a bad film is, you know, something like Forrest Gump, right? Where everyone watches yeah. it and yeah. loves it, you know, like yeah. everyone thinks it's the best movie. A real a piece of art was something that people half people love, half people hate. And so he was tickled with the response, right? Even though ultimately led him never being able to make another movie again, it was exactly the response he wanted to get. Yeah, and uh, I, on our show, the Golden Raspberries are sort of our only enemies because they always uh, take down the movies that we love. And this movie right. like swept in terms of nominations. It was like worst director yeah. tied with Elaine May for Ishtar, which is also a great Jerks. movie. Which is another like, masterpiece. Worst, yeah. Uh, worst actor, worst supporting actress for Stipe, uh, or worst actress for like supporting actress for Rosalini, worst script, uh, just like. And like they, I think a lot of why people don't like it, and a lot of people still like. I've brought it up to some people, and some people are just kind of like appalled by this movie still, or confused by it. Is I think the tonal shifts that, like, what you talked about, how he was trying to convey reality of like mm-hmm. you're at a funeral and you're going to crack a joke, and it's going right. to like this, like the tone of life isn't drama or comedy. And I think that that kind of the, how this movie will be hilarious at times and really dark at others. I think that just throws people off. And most movies that do that, or maybe all movies that do that, people have a really hard time like connecting with because they want it to be that's in the comedy section or that's like at Vulcan, we put this movie in the cult section because that's where we yeah. put the movies that just kind of are genreless and tone, right. like the tone is all over. And I think... And like the, the fact that this is the same year as uh, Blue Velvet, which I think also does this, or this year after Blue Velvet, which does the same thing. And Blue mm-hmm. Velvet also, a lot of people hated. Like Ebert gave it a oh, one star yeah. review, and I think people can't handle that. You're getting upset at one moment, and then you're really laughing the next. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. I, <laughs> I agree with you completely. I mean, they're. I think they're they're, they're they do Blue Velvet and Tough Guys do share a, a tonal similarity, but they're all they're different films thematically, but. Um, yeah. Each is each is great in their own regard for sure, but yeah, that's you know he he wanted he didn't want the film to be classifiable like you know and when it when when it came out you know a lot of the critics and stuff were basically saying like well you know this is awful but you know they could never no critic ever came around and called it they basically they would say like it's a mystery they'd say like it's a you know it's a neo noir and he got pissed about it he was like no he's like it's not an homage to noir it is noir. Like he's like, this is not. A, I'm not homaging anything. I'm not paying tribute. This is a film noir in every yeah. essence, in every key, in every sense of the of the of the theme, right? Um, yeah. So, but it, what's really hilarious too is in the archives down there in Austin, uh, Mailer's archives. There are about fifty of the test screening cards that you know where you went to test screen and filled out the the, the you know the report. You know, like is what do you think of this movie, right? And there is only out of the fifty, there's maybe like one positive. 
other ones are like just giant scrawls. Like I remember there's one that's like, I have pictures, but I took some pictures when I was down there several years ago. But um, yeah, it's like, uh, you know, what do you think of this movie? Like giant handwriting kids' letters is like awful. Worst <laughs> movie ever made. You know, it's like, like you know, as Americans, we, we want, we, you know, we like our, a lot of people like their movies like wrapped up in a bow. We want our narrative wrapped up in a bow. We want a happy ending or we yeah. want something you know, we walk away, we can, or, you know, so we can identify with the characters or we want all this, all these things that all comes back to expectation. Right. And so you cast something, he gives something to the world that's just so radical and challenges all of those things. And then of course people are going to hate it, but again, it, it's a letdown because, you know, he again, puts too much, too much uh, stock in the fact that he thinks people are going to like that. Right. He thinks that people, <laughs> so a lot of it's, it, it's kind of silly because, you know, someone who spent his whole, career like you know sort of a an amateur phenomenologist like studying the phenomenon the, the phenomenon of culture right like looking at why people do things or like you know what the the sort of things underlying underneath the surface in american life it's like he's so grossly misjudged this aspect of culture you know so it's like it's kind of funny when you think about it but it's, it's tragic in a lot of ways because it is such a great film and it would have been amazing to see what he could have done after this and there is the great sh- trailer for this movie where Norman Mailer reads the uh, comment cards, wh- whether they're the real ones or not. Uh, and I highly recommend people check it out. You can find it on YouTube. They are real. I- I've held them in my hands. They're, they're <laughs> archives in Austin. They're amazing. The- yeah, I held in my hands. Oh, my God. The cool thing, I mean, that's another reference to noir, too, is if you actually go back and watch the trailer, this is why he was, he was, I mean, this is like Raymond Chandler. But you go out and watch that trailer, look in the background, he's got a replica of the Maltese Falcon in the background in the trailer. <laughs> and so it's like, you know, he's he's paying homage to Raymond Chandler, he's paying Noir the Maltese Falcon to the big sleep. I mean, these are all he's paying so much attention to the, the yeah, all the tropes of film noir in this picture. Like, you know, the the femme fatale, the am, the amnesia, you know, all the stuff from the classic film noir is all put it is all in this film. The cocaine. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Um, well, I was always doing cocaine. Big <laughs> sleep is like, and in in your commentary on Tough Guys Don't Dance, you drew some connections to the Blue Dahlia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Because I actually I I hadn't seen the Blue Dahlia. I went back. I was just watching it this morning. I got about halfway through mm-hmm. before we we got to recording, and I I felt like I was connecting the two but i'm curious how you see the two is connected i i think if memory serves what i what i was saying in my commentary was like that and i haven't seen that movie in a long time now but um i think it was just like like similarities it was one of the it was just i was just drawing attention to the, the similar tropes right it's like this guy in the blue dolly i think he's is uh all alan lad alan lad yes again very much like um he he is Alan Ladd is not the sort of macho noir lead. Yeah, he's more Ryan O'Neill. Yeah. Not a yeah. Widmark or whatever. He's got an almost feminine quality to him, like Ryan O'Neill. But also, it's a case of uh, mistaken i not mistaken identity, but mistaken accusation. Right. So it's like him mm-hmm. being accused of this crime. He didn't do it. Right. And he has to spend the film um, going through that, trying to figure out like how or, you know what unraveling the story in reverse. I feel like. Um, to get to the point where he realized what actually happened, this is very similar and tough. So let's uh, let's get into talking about this. Actually, just talking about the film. And wait, Brian, did you have something you wanted to say? 
No, I was about to say the same thing. Oh, we're thinking, <laughs> we're thinking alike. So, how do we get into this? Do you want to talk about the 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 performances and the characters? I, I feel like maybe that's how we should let's let's enter that way because the casting of this film is pretty amazing. Um, I'm not. I, I'm very much on record on not being a, a much of a Ryan O'Neill fan, but have you seen Green Ice? Green Ice? No. Is it good? That's the Ryan O'Neill Italian's uh, space movie. You're going to see Green Ice. <laughs> okay. Okay. Hey, I, I've, I've watched a lot of Ryan O'Neill movies that I have uh, come away. But have you seen him in space? <laughs> I have not seen him in space. I saw him. I feel like he was in space when he was filming The Driver uh, because he doesn't look like he's aware that he's in a movie at all. He's just is like. Being subtle means just not being here, right? <laughs> okay. Right. Yeah. Well, it, it, uh, but in this I mean, film, he yeah. is so well. You, I've never said this before. I mean, I, I, I do like him in the Bogdanovich films or Bogdanovich films, but mm-hmm. even those, I don't come away feeling like, oh no, this is perfect, Ryan O'Neill, and this is perfect, Ryan O'Neill. He is just, he's at the right age. He's just pretty enough and just old enough. That, that gives him some character. And I believe this guy. I believe that he's a bartender, gigolo, horn dog, coke dealer. Who can, who's, yeah, I just fucking love it. Well, it's interesting because I think, I, I, you know, we'll never know for sure, right? But uh, he was always Miller's first choice for the part. Really? But, yeah. But um, could they were him him and Mailer were friends. They, they were, they went back a few years and they used to actually, before the film, uh, they used to box together at a gym in New York city. They'd get together on Saturdays and spar together. And, when he was preparing for the main event. with yeah, we, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, but around the same time too, during, during the shooting of tough guys was also, and I always have wondered, like, I've never got to talk to O'Neill. He just will not uh, talk about this movie, but, um, during during the shooting of Tough Guys was also when his uh, son Griffin uh, was in that boat accident with Coppola's son Gio, and Coppola's son died. Mm. Um, and so you know it's kind of a weird situation where Coppola is involved the Tough Guys to a certain degree. O'Neill's in it as well, and so there's there's potentially you know these tensions that maybe could be rising from that. And also, so imagine you're working and you have to deal with it, your son potentially murdering or not. I shouldn't say murdering, but his son accidentally killing uh you know uh son of a peer right so i have to wonder if that has something to do with his performance but also around the same time he's also in these series of really strange uh films like you know i think of this is a great performance but i also love his performance in the last richard brooks movie fever pitch which he made the year before this which he's like he was a, a gamble like a card uh obsessive gambler not to be confused with the uh, Boston Red Sox. Uh, Jimmy Fallon movie, Jimmy right? Fallon movie. Uh, that was Ryan O'Neill in that. I would have watched that one again. But yeah, no. no. So it, it's just, I don't know. It's just like, interestingly, how O'Neill got cast in a string of these sort of oddball films around the and I, th- I think like there was a time when he was a handsome bankable star and by the late eighties, he was not so much. And I don't, and I don't, and I don't know if at the time 
I don't know, like, when did Tatum O'Neill's, like, book come out where she talked about all the bad stuff that he was up to, where people just started to think of him as a creepy guy, you know, or just, a, like, a bad dad. But I feel like even when you go back to Barry Lyndon, like, I think there's certain directors that know how to use him in a way where it's like, you, like, he is handsome, but there's something off about him. There's something that's maybe a sociopath or maybe there's, like, and I think Walter Hill with The Driver does the same thing, where it's like he knows there's something about the deadness in his eyes that you, like, that doesn't work if he's trying to be a charming guy outside of a Bogdanovich movie. But, like, I think Kubrick saw it, clearly. Because Barry Lyndon, that's an unlikable character. Uh, but you're stuck with him for three hours. And in this in this movie, I think, is the best of all his performances, Tough Guys Don't Dance, because he is the hero. But then there's just all these just like uncomfortable moments that, you, that the hero normally isn't allowed to do, like asking a woman to have sex with him in front of her husband. Like that's not normally a thing that the hero of your movie uh, partakes in or just being kind of drunk or just kind of being this sort of. Yeah, it's just it's a, there's it's a, there's something off about this character. And that must be too. Maybe Mailer saw some of that in Ryan O'Neill, knowing him as a person, that like he could definitely pull this off in spades, <laughs> which someone else wouldn't think to cast him, you know? Well, yeah, he, he's a he's an interesting anti-hero, right? Tim Madden is an anti-hero. And but, you know, he's all but he's also um, he's he's an everyday anti-hero. Right. So it's like he's only he's you know, he's not as an audience. We watch the film. He's never a step ahead of us. Like we're kind of on the same path as him. So he's never kind of really an, a step ahead of us knowing what's going to happen next. Like in a lot of these, a lot of these noirs, like, you know, maybe can anticipate that happening. Right. Or whatever. But also O'Neill is Irish and Mailer had these really weird ideas of Irish people. Like he was obsessed with Irish people. Like he would often in the sixties, he would walk. It was like one of the ways he, you know, he, if you go back and watch Maidstone, for example, like he, there's t- scenes in that movie where he's using an Irish accent, Mailer is. And it's like just a, a way for him to create a character in which he can express himself. It's, so it's, a, it's got a really weird, I can't even <laughs> explain, you know, the full scope of his interest in Irish people, but he definitely had it. So I feel like that also played into it too, because O'Neill was definitely straight out hardcore Irish. Yeah. <laughs> Wells too, right? Wells was also kind of obsessed. He, he had, had did that Irish accent in The Lady from Shanghai which you could just tell he was loving it. Um. <laughs> I think Wells had that, didn't have that. I remember, remember there was some backstory where he claimed to have spent some of his youth in, in uh-huh. Ireland or whatever. Yeah. And uh, in a way, a lot of this movie feels like a, an Irish wake where you're in front of a dead body, but you're cracking jokes and singing. And it's just an odd feeling, <laughs> an, odd, yeah, yeah. an odd tone. Uh but yeah, Ryan O'Neill's so goddamn good in this movie. And the fact that like so many people boil this movie down to just a meme of him on the beach saying, oh man, oh God, like just don't get this movie or even understand that scene in the movie. And I feel that's got to be the most famous part of this film for people who've never even seen it and kind of look at that as, oh, that must be a bad movie and his performance is terrible there. Uh, and what did Ryan O'Neill think about that scene and his performances? Is there anything we talked about it? They hated it. Like he, they all. Not only did O'Neill hate it, but director John Bailey hated. It. They begged him to cut it out. They they wanted him to cut that scene out so much, uh, but he just refused. Right, and I mean, good for him. Good I talk him. A, about in my commentary, but also my book, like why that scene is important. But um, 
interestingly, in the, the DVD that came out a few years ago by MGM, before Mailer passed away, there is a, a, a little clip of him talking about that scene, basically saying, like, you know, probably in hindsight, uh, now, today, if he was making the movie, he would probably cut that scene out. But I feel like that's a, I feel like that's a, a sin to do that. Like, I feel like it is the most uh, it's a, and it's a, it is a, it is an absurd scene. But I feel like the way I the way I work the scene in my head is like to me, it is the most important scene in all of Mailer's movies because it, it go it boils down to what he was trying to achieve as a filmmaker. And I feel like arguably it is the, it is it is the moment he achieves for the first time what he wants to achieve what he's trying to get at in film um as an aesthetic as a you know as a as a phenomenologist whatever a philosopher but he's been trying to get at since the 60s in his movies he finally captures in fiction versus direct cinema um in 1987 uh so just t- thinking about that scene one of the things that on rewatching it because I, re- I remember that scene. I've obviously seen the memes and all that. Uh, I don't remember it being terrible at the registering in my mm-hmm. mind as being terrible. Right. Uh, but watching it again, I am. it is surprising that considering all of the terrible th- and weird things that uh, O'Neill's character experiences, mm-hmm. that this he, and all of the kinky infidelity stuff that he's playing with that this is his reaction to finding out that his ex is fooling around with this cop and it's like wait that that's what gets the big reaction not the heads in the bags and the the other stuff (laughs) like do you have a do you have a theory on that well i think you know i mean i think the way it's shot so I think in order to truly get the scene, you have to not, you have to kind of step away from it and think about what is happening in the scene, like you mentioned, versus just experiencing it. Right. So the, the, the shot, the swirl mm-hmm. is reflective of the learning of the information. Right. So the, Oh God, Oh man. And Oh, oh God, Oh man to Mailer was his way of reflect. It was his way of expressing epiphany. Okay, so back in because I know all the stuff inside and out. uh, Back in the seventies, there was when he was on there was no. I mean, he was on Dick Cavett like ten ten times or whatever. But one time on Cavett in the seventies, he was on there talking about Marilyn Monroe because he'd written a book about Marilyn Monroe, and he was talking about realizing something about Marilyn Monroe for the first time in the interview. And he looked at Cavett, he's like, "Oh God, oh man, oh God, oh man." He's like, "I couldn't believe it," you know. And it's like, so it's like it's his way of expressing epiphany. So. It's why it's that's why because that scene is it's O'Neill's epiphany because the whole whole movie he's been in this dizzying swirl of confusion trying to figure out like what is happening like why is he being set up like why you know what is going on around him behind the scenes that you know all these all, there's all these pieces in play and he can't figure them out because he's working through this puzzle and so it's that moment in the film where everything in a lot of ways becomes crystal clear for him for the first time right so it's his epiphany. And it's also why, but you know, it's it's it reflects it's reflective of surprise and shock. So it's it's if you go back to the opening scene in Tough Guys with a naked woman answering the door to Wing, Wingshauser's Regency, if you go back and watch that scene and listen very closely, she answers the door and she says, "Oh God, oh man, oh boy," like it, it's mm-hmm. a way of them. It's a way of them expressing 
shock and epiphany. It's just, it's just, it's, so that's why it's in there, right? Because it's, it's his revolution. It's his revelation that and now he knows what the hell is going on this in the story, right? Because at that point on in the film, it's like he has a clear process in terms of how he's going to go forward. Because he know, now he knows the Regency's really probably behind this stuff. And he knows, you know, the Patty Lorraine is all behind this stuff. So it's like it gives him that epiphany. Act- acting chief, right? That going, <laughs> yes. He's, it's, he's acting like chief, the chief the whole time in this movie. But well, let's and, talk and it's about... A, it's a play too, right? Because it's like yeah. a play on words because yeah. a lot yeah. of, you know, there a lot of the ways... And for Mailers, like characters, you know, we all so we act in, in reality, like man, women, they act, we act in our real lives. Like we, we are, we're acting now to a certain degree, right? But we all act to influence situations. You know, we may act in front of some person to uh, convince them of something to, you know, get what we want or whatever. So it's a play of words. Not only is he the pretentious police, but he's acting like Hauser is acting as in his character is acting. He's trying to convince Madden that he's on the side, you know, so it's a play. Uh, it's a, it's a play on several things. Yeah. His performance is like, whereas Ryan O'Neill is not, I don't love him in most things, but he's great in this. He's part of the greatness flows from what wings Hauser Everyone, oh, yeah. all the supporting cast are giving him, and Wings gives him the most. So, and Wingshauser is one of my favorite actors of all time, and especially in the eighty on in the eighties, he was on a roll, like from Vice Squad to The Carpenter. All of that is gold, and like uh, he's just he and he knows where to go. Like he's such a smart actor, he knows when to go up and when to go down. And like I love all his hand acting in this movie, like when he's reading. Uh, the suicide letter from the character Lonnie and he's doing all these things with his fingers and then he closes his fist. It's brilliant. <laughs> and he's just brilliant. And like, I'm glad that like, I feel like in the eighties, he wasn't in a lot of kind of huge, big movies that were kind of taken. So he was in a lot of schlockier things, exploited things or a lot of TV, but he was always good. And I think it's really cool that Norman Mailer knew like, no, I got to put this guy in this movie. Yeah, he he. Uh, yeah, you're right because a lot of the films he made in the '80s were he always kind of played the rogue cop. You know, he was kind of like the, the you know the he was kind of like a John Wick, but without as much violence, right? You know, is yeah. But I mean, he, he never got truly. He never got a lot of option. He never got a lot of chances to like kind of truly express himself dramatically, right? He always had to shoot a gun or something, right? But yeah, yeah. he's also one of my favorite actors of all time too. I love you know stuff like this. He didn't. Uh, his performance in Siege of Fireblaze Gloria is is phenomenal. Uh, he's in Jojo uh, Dancer a little bit with Richard Pryor. Uh, so many good, so many good performances. Yeah, and uh, but anything better than this? I mean, this is this is the one oh, that always sticks yeah. for me. For sure. Yeah, I know. I I agree with you completely. About I think the only place he's kind of allowed to. I mean, well, first off, you, you don't get as good of, uh, you may get good, better characters, but you don't get as good a dialogue ever, right, than you get in a Norman Mailer movie. So even when Hauser is later on, he's directing his own movies, like uh, one film that sticks up that I love that Hauser wrote and directed is called The Art of Dying, which is... Yeah, I love it. <laughs> so great. And so, yeah, so stuff like that, like where it's like great characters, great, great, uh, great opportunities to kind of chew a scene you know but you don't get great dialogue like um you know um 
you know, I saw a blind at the end of my high beams, right? You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, like you get a Nora Mailer movie, right? You don't, you don't get that. It's only Nora Mailer can write this sort of uh, amazing dialogue that blends like the colloquial with, um, you know, like the sort of, um, you know, like the sort like the, because the, the, I guess we'll say that blends the colloquial with the Shakespeare. How's that right? Mixed with it with kind of American ethos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think my favorite dialogue in this movie is uh, everything Lawrence Tierney says <laughs> is so good. Never call an Italian small potatoes. It's such a good. <laughs> Never call an <laughs> like, Italian small potatoes. And, like, and, and I feel like he, I can, I could see why that throws people off. Cause like whenever Lawrence Tierney's on screen, it does feel kind of like a comedy. Like he, everything he's saying is so sharp and so funny. And, and in a way, Tierney to me kind of feels like if Norman Mailer was an actor, he would have played that character. Like it has that, there's something very Norman Mailery about Tierney being this sort of like old school type of, you know, masculine guy uh, compared to whatever Ryan O'Neill's up to in this, in this movie. It's a great, great juxtaposition. It's a great juxtaposition between the two for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and just, and then the scene of him dumping the bodies to pump and circumstance is such a weird moments in any movie i've ever seen like the tone of that then is all of a sudden feels kind of lighthearted and strange and and it there's like all these all these actors are just working on like i think their best like at their best capacity like they're all so given it to norman mailer here the, the pop and circumstance actually has a very specific meaning but again this is like why this is why like mailer sort of grossly misjudged his audience right because like no one it's 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 a it's a Norman Mailer thing. It's a reference to Norman Mailer. It's like no one is gonna understand the pop and circumstance thing unless you like unless you've read everything in Norman Mailer's, right? Unless you're intimately familiar with his life, how he grew up, what that song means to him, you don't you don't get it, right? But yeah, it, it, it works on on some level because in a lot of ways it is it is uh it is a song that comments on the metaphysics of Tim Madden, right? So it is it is often equated, we, we, we equate it with graduating, right? So what is Tim Madden yeah. doing in it? He has metaphysically graduated in the story, right? And he has graduated. He is at the start of the story. He is, uh, you know, as he says in the, in the, in the party scene, right? He's uh, like experiencing nothingness. Like, you know, he's bored, you know, he's just like empty, he's ashes. And at the end of it, he's just gone through this intense uh, life experience that is, sort of reaffirmed his his being his philosophical being and so it's like and now he's graduated on to the next thing as we'll see in the end it's just a cycle right so at the end of the film we're literally back where we started right the last <laughs> shot of the movie we're back at exactly where we started at the beginning <laughs> and we will get to the end but i did i while we're still thinking talking about the cast were any of these were did Mailer get everyone that he wanted to work with? Were there people he wanted in certain roles that he was not able to get? Yeah, I, I mean, pretty much got everyone he wanted. In early, early, early stages, he, like I said, with Ryan O'Neill, he had always wanted Ryan O'Neill. But when he was first, like, imagining this as a film, he had actually seriously toyed around with approaching Warren Beatty to play the Tim Mann part. Would have been Which great. would have been insane, right? But, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, pretty much everyone he approached, he got. I mean, he Mailer was also tied in. He had been a, he was a lifelong member of the actor studio, 
And so, you know, you found some of the actors through Actors Studio, like some of the actors were like East Coast Repertory people. Well, he found Francis Fisher at the Actors Studio at the time. He auditioned her through the Actors Studio. And so, yeah, he, I mean, pretty much, you know, found, I mean, he had very specific ideas on how he wanted to cast the film. So it wasn't a long process for him. I mean, no, and no one fought him on the casting either. So it was like a situation where like he, he was, but he could be indecisive. So he, at times he would, like, for example, Wings Hauser, I think Wings Hauser auditioned like four or five times for the part. And I think mm-hmm. he did that to a lot of the actors, because, but he, he also filmed and videotaped all the actors auditions. Wow. Just because like he wanted to, you know, he wanted to see what they would look like on, on TV. Where, where did he find Deborah Stipe who plays Patty Lorraine? Cause she is incredible. Deborah in Sandland. Sorry. That's uh, Deborah uh, Sandland. Deborah uh, Stipe, Deborah Sandland. Yes. She, yes, she was, she blew, when I first saw the film, she was also one of the real standouts. I'm, I've always been kind of surprised that she never became a a, a star out of this. Well, she she dropped out of acting actually. So, um, interestingly, she but she lives here in my town. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, does she go by Sandlin or Stipe now? Because on IMDb it says Stipe. Okay. Yeah, she goes by Stipe, <laughs> and she runs a, a, a like an acting school for children. <laughs> I want to see a documentary about that. Ironically, uh, yeah. But like she, like for someone who I don't think was ever in much before this movie, is given so much to do and so much trust in her kind of delivering this this kind of big character that kind of like bounces between all the other characters and is so pivotal to the story. And she's just she's just working on another level. Like I said, it reminds me so much of Diane Ladd and Wild at Heart two, three years later. And it's just it's it could have been too over the top, but she just knows like just like with Wings Hauser, where to kind of put it up and down. And it's such a, like when that character decides to have a seance and get all witchy, you don't question it. You're like, of course. Yeah. That's the type of lady that you take. Like, yeah, they're going to go do that now. Uh, and, and she just, every scene, she's just like, just, just really chewing it up and doing a great, great job. And it's just a shame to read about the release of this and how some, so many people are so mean to her. And I think the Razzie Razzies gave her the uh, worst new star nominee or something like that. And it's like, she should (laughs) have, and she should have been in more things because she's clearly incredible. The whole thing, the whole thing kind of soured her on acting more. I think she did some sporadic TV stuff after this, but so she had came to the project through because uh, because Norman was tied in with Tom Luddy and Fred Ru- uh, Coppola. That meant he had ties to Fred Bruce as well, right? Who cast yeah. the American Graffiti and all the stuff for Coppola. But so uh, Deborah Sandler was a find of Fred Bruce, and um, but Norman may have thought that he, he was making like a big discovery with her, right? Like he he thought he he loved her, and he thought that she was the most important character in the film, like the Patty Lorraine character was the most, because ultimately she is the most important because she is what in effect sets the whole narrative into motion, right? She, it's her yeah. idea to, you know, take the cocaine and take the money. I mean, it's her setting the whole narrative in the motion. And that's why she was the most important, but he worked extremely close with her during the whole shoot. He was really kind of like took her under her wing. And at the time she was really hesitant about uh, working on the film because she was, a, I mean, she, I guess she still is, but a pretty devout uh, Christian, very religious. As Wings Hauser told me um, that uh, during the filming, she was always in a battle between God and Norman, and Norman won every time. 
<laughs> and so, you know, there was uh, a lot of issues with the nudity and the, the language. And it, interestingly, uh, if you buy a copy of a few years ago, a book came out called The Selected Letters of Norman Mailer, which is just, you know, uh, hundreds and hundreds of letters he wrote over his lifetime. There is a five, three or four page, five made page letter even to Deborah Sandlin's parents. Just basically writing this letter saying like, you know, I, it's such a nice letter that, you know, it's basically like I have, um, you know, nothing but the most, the utmost respect for your daughter as an actress. And I would never do anything to injure her. I would never put her in jeopardy. I would never exploit her. All this stuff, right? We're making this great art film and all this. He wrote this letter to her parents and, and she didn't actually, she never knew about it. And then when I met her, I showed her the letter. She broke, in, broke out into tears. It was amazing. But like, uh, yeah, so it's like he really took her under a wing. He thought she was he was making a big discovery with her. And the real tragedy of it is that not only were the critics really awful to her, did she get those bad reviews? But when the film was at the Cannes Film Festival, I actually I have an audio recording of the press conference that they gave at the at the Cannes Festival. Where it's Norman, her, Tom Luddy, and Menachem Golan. And the critics are just so savage to her. But, you know, one of the, there's a, a piece in the audio where the French critic goes like, you know, like, who are you? Like, where did you come from? You come from Chicago? Like, you were a dancer before? It's like, they're just dumbfounded, like, that that, they, that he cast this unknown woman in this film. And she really does, she steals every scene that she's in the film, yeah. right? Yeah. And yeah. prior prior to this, I mean, if anyone, a lot of people, like, say, well, she went on to do some full house. But one of the <laughs> things she was really great in late earlier was she was actually in uh, the first season of Michael Mann's Crime Story. Which, and she's really good in that, too, even though she's kind of got a supporting role, but she's very, she stands out in all those things in that show, too. Yeah, 1987 was a good year for Deborah Sandland, but. Uh... It was the only year for Deborah. <laughs> well, I mean, she did do a lot of TV work. She did 21 Jump Street, LA Law, Hunter, Matlock, Moonlighting, Jake and the Fat Man, Who's the Boss, Murder She Wrote in the Heat of the Night. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not the trajectory that you would think coming out of this film. Like, right, why right, did yeah. David Lynch never, why didn't he put her in Twin Peaks? That's, <laughs> Good question. She, yeah. Totally. That's Good question. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it was, a, if it was a masterpiece, come on, throw us a bone, David. Yeah. Uh, my favorite lines in the film are often hers or Wardley's. Yeah. Those are my favorite, the favorite lines in the film. Yeah, John Bedford Lloyd is really good. And that's another one where, like, before this, the only thing I remember him from is, like, being one of the preppies and trading places. <laughs> and the fact that, like, that, that he's trading given places. such a big part in this, uh, <laughs> this big part of this movie. And he's so good. And there's just something just really, I find him to be the most fascinating person in this movie where I can't take my eyes off him. There's something very strange about the way he talks and the way he looks and just like there's like i and the fact that his characters dropped in sort of after even the middle part of the movie you don't he doesn't really show up until the movie's already well on its way but then he's such a pivotal part of the last half of the story absolutely yeah the worldly character has a much bigger plays a much bigger part of the story in the novel but uh yeah no i, I give you your saying totally and and uh yeah he was you know he was uh, someone who just came into audition and he actually originally auditioned for the Tim Madden part. And Norman was like, well, you're obviously not right for Tim Madden, but have you thought about, you know, reading for Wardley? And so, uh, yeah, so he, but he, I mean, he was in awe of working with Norman. In fact, when I was writing my book about the, the Norman's films, 
uh, man, my favorite interview I did with anyone was him because we had such fun. Like, I mean, all the, you know, how actors are. So it's like any, you know, actors sometimes remember their lines. Sometimes they don't. And, you know, all these years later, he could remember every single one of his lines. Right. Wow. So interviewing him or just like talk and talking in the worldly voice. And I'm like, I'm so wrong for this kind of imbroglio. You know, <laughs> every line, you know, it's like, we had a great time, you know, him and I had a great time talking about, uh, you know, the all the lines he had and working with Norman, how he chose to deliver those lines and stuff. It was a real important opportunity for him to work on the film. Yeah. Yeah. He's well, he's fantastic. And he, he has continued to work pretty regularly over the years, but again, never in, never with a lead. Like I, I don't, I guess this is sort of a co-lead or a, major supporting role but uh yeah you, you see him pop up in like the abyss or philadelphia is like some like part of a group of people but never like nothing like this at least that it pops into memory or on blue bloods or something you know <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe he's, casting rounds yeah he's great uh and it's also fun to see a uh, pen Gillette show up uh, you know, in the eighties, he would kind of him and or Penn and Taylor would pop up in all these little parts, but uh, he's so good, and that that kind of sermon he's giving in the church is so funny, and it's so gr- it's so great. Uh, I wish there was more of him in this movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's 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 interesting because it's almost like a it's almost like a celebrity cameo to a certain degree. You know, you're like kind of shocked when you see him. I I would always I always kind of wondered like what. You know, it would have been like to see the film in 1987 and see him, right? If people were that as aware yeah. of him as we are today, you know? Yeah, oh, definitely. I mean, 87 was, you know, they were popular. Like they were always on Letterman or, you know, like yeah. they're, they're the, the, like Penn and Teller was, a, I feel, a big deal already by this point. Um, Penn and Teller Get Killed comes out a year or two yeah, after this movie. I think, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and maybe this is a good time to talk about some of like the, and I mean this in a good way, the sleaziness of this film. So, yeah. I mean, when we meet Penn and, uh, I mean, we met, we meet uh, Penn Gillette and Deborah Sandlin for the first time, it's because Ryan O'Neill is hanging out with Isabella Rossellini and reading Screw Magazine <laughs> and looking at ads in the back and convinces her to go down swinging. <laughs> And <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that scene is great because it's done as if they're just talking about breakfast. Like it's not yeah. like uh, you'd see that in another movie, and it'd be like him really trying to convince the wife to or girlfriend to go do this. But they're like, oh, this couple, and they're like, okay, it's just sort of like <laughs> not a lot of hesitation on her behalf, maybe a little bit, but not a lot. And it's really just like, what do you want to do tonight? Let's go meet these people from Screw Magazine's letters <laughs> and go have a swinging time. And like, and that's sort of also how. Ryan O'Neill talks about uh, having sex uh, with uh, Jessica in front of of Lonnie. It's really, it's just kind of like, and now the conversation has come to this. It's not done in a, in another movie would make it more of like, oh, this is like a big deal that this guy's getting it all pervy. But it's just kind of natural. It feels very natural for the Ryan O'Neill character to be like, well, yeah, this is just how I live. And I... It it does. There is a part of me that's like, yeah, the Warren Beatty would be pretty great. <laughs> I would love to see. Yeah. I, I yeah, I, I don't. It could never. That could never happen. But uh, yeah, and Ryan, and it makes you actually appreciate what Ryan O'Neill brings because there is this just sleazy, faded, 
good-looking guy thing that that just works so well. But uh, what what was Mailer? I mean, again, you've you're you're speaking for the man to some degree because you've done a lot of research. Um, did he have, was there a reason for that sleaziness in this? I think it's just kind of, you know, the, the story takes place in Provincetown. And if you've never been to P-Town, it is this very, very weird place that has this, well, not only is it, you know, today it's, uh, you know, it's kind of the East Coast gay mecca. Right, right. But it has this history of, you know, uh hosting pirates and whalers and moon cussers and all these sort of rogue people. And it's also kind of the place where they have this unspoken rule, which is basically like, look, you do whatever your thing is, right. As long and that's whether that's kinky sex or drugs or whatever, but like you do it and we'll leave you alone. But the second you hurt someone, we're going to come after you. Right. And so it's kind of like, a, we, you know, we're going to turn a blind eye to a lot of stuff. So I feel like in a lot of ways, that kind of the sort of sleaziness, not only is it in the book, but I think it's also, you know, and I don't want to uh, speak ill of Provincetown, but I feel like in a lot of ways, some of that stuff is there already <laughs> to a certain degree. And so um, I spent a lot of time there. I was just there like a month ago, a week. And it was- well, this is the the other part that I found really compelling is that it's a Cape Cod noir. And there, that is, it's a very, I feel like maybe this movie and Jaws are the two big. A good double feature? Yeah. <laughs> two big, if you want to, if you want to get that feeling yeah. of hanging out on the beach. Right, right, um, yeah. Maybe throw in the, the middle section of Reds <laughs> uh, with the Eugene O'Neill uh, affair with uh, the yeah. Diane Keaton character. That and you know if you're if you're familiar with that area, it has a very particular vibe, it and does. all of those films really capture it. But I don't think mm-hmm. they, I was looking, digging around for other Cape Cod noirs or even other films uh, that take place on Cape Cod, and there really aren't many considering yeah. what a cinematically mm-hmm. compelling place it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking of. Uh, they haven't made a film out of it yet, but Dennis Johnson's novel, The Resuscitation of a Hanged Man, is mm-hmm, one mm-hmm. I've always I've yearned to see because I, I feel like that would be an, a great uh, off season. It's, all, it's a book that takes yeah. place all in the off season at a radio station on Cape Cod. And I just feel like oh, that's yeah. a, such an, uh, an exciting venue for a story to happen. But um, do you have thoughts on the whole Cape Codness of it and other Cape Cod noirs? I just think, you know, he may. So the reason why this story is even exists in the first place, basically, is because, you know, he had just come off in, in the early 80s. He had just come off of spending what is essentially a decade writing this book called Ancient Evenings. And it really, it was, it came out and it was super polarizing. No one understood it and everyone kind of hated it. And so he thought after that book was over, he would take a vacation, but he'd already had gotten advanced money from a publisher. And so he thought he could sit back for a year and kind of just hang out in Cape Cod. Cause that's, he, he lived there and he loved it there. Right. He felt like that was the only place he could breathe. 
um, outside of, you know, because uh, he'd been born and raised in New York. And so it was, he spent, you know, most of his adult life there. He wrote a lot of his books in Cape Cod. And um, so, you know, basically uh, the publisher said, look, we're going to sue you if you don't write us a book. Like, we gave you money. We need a book. We need it now. And so he kind of panicked and he thought, okay, I've got to turn around a book. So what can I write about fast? What can, and so I know I'll, I'll write this murder mystery and I'll set it here in Cape Cod because I know this area I've lived here for, you know, 30 years. So it's like, I know everything about this area. And so he, he said it there intentionally in the, because he basically knew he wouldn't have to do any research. He could just kind of pull everything off the top of his head. And set it there because he was so well um, acclimated within the region, right? So that's why the story exists in the first place. But it, I mean, if you've been there in the off season, it is, like I said, a very isolated, disturbing place. I, f- I feel physically uncomfortable when I go there. And I don't know why. And I've been there several times. I was just there about a month ago for a week. And well, actually, it's about a month and a half ago, but I was there for a week and it was still off season and it was a ghost town. No one was there at night. I could only eat at one restaurant every night because that was all that was open. And no one was out in the streets. And it's just it's such a weird, creepy, <laughs> desolate place. And but he loved it. He loved that sort of ambiance of it. He loved the fact also that, like, you see it conveyed in the film too, right? You, the opening party sequences, this desperate collection of oddball characters right you see like you know there's like a gay couple and a biker and there's some drug addicts i think you know it's like this you know but that that's what provincetown is it especially in the off season it is a desperate selection of people that hang on there and the only entertainment they have is each other i mean you go to provincetown i mean there is it's so weird there is not a fast food restaurant on provincetown in provincetown there's there's no mcdonald's no Burger King, nothing. Oddly enough, there was a Radio Shack. <laughs> I learned that my last visit, and I don't know why there's a Radio Shack there, but there is. But it, it, so it's a very ice. It, it feels like it is, you know, it, it, living in the South. If you've ever been to Florida, Florida doesn't feel like the South, but in Provincetown doesn't feel. Like, so I guess you could say that Florida doesn't feel like it's the part of the United States. Cape Cod, Provincetown doesn't feel like that either. It feels like it's an island unto itself. It's very weird. Yeah. And yeah. so I feel like he was attracted to that. He loved that, that the, the, all these different collections, this collection of people that were these oddballs could come together and co-mingle. That was what, that was like catnip to him. So you combine that with the history of Provincetown, this, with the pirates and, you know, the pillaging and the raping. He loved all that shit. The fact that Provincetown was like the f- original first place where the pilgrims landed. Yeah, maybe you should tell people what a moon cusser is since you referenced that. <laughs> the moon cusser is like a spiritual person that kind of barks at the moon and kind of you know speaks in tongues at the moon and, and kind of is a mystical spiritual person that is obsessed oh, oh. with the moon, the cycles of the moon. It's funny because I yeah. did I did a little research. That's not the story <laughs> I, I read. <laughs> okay. What did you what they you said read? that moon cussers were basically land land pirates who would uh, prey on boats that got stuck on the sh- rocky shoals, and uh, yeah, and that yeah, they there would was those two, yeah. and that basically they could only do it when the moon wasn't out, because when the moon was out, people could see him coming. So that's why they cussed the moon, because the moon made oh, their well, crimes. I, I, I've, I've heard it both ways actually, but yeah, it makes sense for sure. 
I don't know. I I think you're putting out some some pro pirate po- propaganda there. Uh, they're <laughs> mystical people who love the moon and will slit your throat. News. It's fake your... news. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, wait, wait, one more thing I want to say. Uh, I did come across a film when I was doing my research. Mm-hmm. A film called Mystery Street. Um, okay. Uh, that is about a murder on Cape Cod, and I think I was read. It was in during your uh, commentary that you talked mm-hmm. about how this film was based upon yeah. some real murders that took place yep. on Cape Cod, and I feel like it's possible this film, Mystery Street from 1950, uh, starring Ricardo Montalban and directed by John mm-hmm. Sturgis. Uh, was may have also been uh, inspired by those murders. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so I'm saying. I'm sorry, sorry. <laughs> well, what the, those murders though were in the late '60s, though, weren't they? Okay. Tony Costa murders happened in the summer of '60, either '68 or '67, '68 or '69. I can't remember off the top of my head, but yeah, so definitely couldn't have been the inspiration of the film, but okay, but yeah, they, they were a huge, uh, I mean, they shocked that community like no one's business, and they, a lot of the people that worked on the film, I mean, Mailer had very specific ideas, because he always said that like he, you know, th- I mean, throughout the film, some people pick up on it and some don't, but some people just refuse to acknowledge it, but there, there is an overwhelming spiritual presence that emanates and runs through the film. Like spirits are always uh, at work in the film. They're always present, right? There, you know, a lot of the dialogue of people are prey to spirits and you know, spirits, you know, so that, that's something that's a very Malarian idea. That, so it comes in his writing as well, too, like that, you know, that spirits are around you and they can, they may or may not influence you. Right. Some some maybe some to a, a more prolific degree, some less. Right. But so he, he had specific ideas on that in terms of Provincetown. Like you felt that, that was something that, that very much uh, was active in Provincetown, that that that, you know, that, that spirit, that how how visible they are. I mean, it's kind of a kooky idea, but like it's something that you can tie that he tied into those murders. Right. That 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 these, you know, that the, the Tony Costas, the spirit of Tony, the spirit cl- dark cloud of evil. Or whatever that whatever it was. He's a, like uh, what the guy from Twin Peaks. Uh, yeah, Bob. Mm-hmm. Bob. He's basically yeah, yeah, Bob. exactly <laughs> right. So that 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 was uh, that that something like a Tony Costa that happens and you know or like I think John John Bailey, director of photography, once told me he's like yeah, we talked about that. It was like you know that or like how a dark cloud of evil kind of floats over Germany during World War II, where you know it floats over Uvalde recently, you know, or like something like that, right? If you believe in those kind of things. But Mailer really believed in those things. Like that, so he had specific ideas on like certain areas where he wouldn't go in Provincetown, where he wouldn't shoot in Provincetown because they just gave him the heebie jeebies. Like he felt like he could pick up on those things. And so, but they end up shooting some of the film in those actual locations where the, the Tony Costa stuff had happened. All that stuff about the your where you're you keep your pot in Truro. Yeah, that the Truro the Truro Woods where they shot in the film was where the bodies were found in the real Tony Costa case. So they the people that worked on the film were scared shitless. They they felt they said they could feel stuff in they could feel a vibe in the air when they were out in the woods. Some of them were terrified of it as much like uh, know anything about the shooting of uh, Richard Brooks's In Cold Blood. They shot that film in the actual house 
mm-hmm. in the in where the clutters were murdered. So they, you know, actor Scott Wilson and Robert Blake were standing in the exact positions where the killers stood when they shot the family. The actor playing the kid of the clutters was laying in the same position on the floor in the actual house where the actual body was found. And if you actually read, there's a there was a famous Life magazine article that came out uh, during the production of that. The cover is uh, Wilson Blake and Capote, and uh, you read the article, and there, there's interviews with some of the, the people that worked on that film where they were they were coming out of the house in mid shoot throwing up. They could feel that presence and that that evil and that mystery in the air was so palpable that it was someone would have to leave the shoot and they'd go out and throw up in the yard because it was so overwhelming to them. And so Mailer had that very, Mailer had, uh, he was very clued in and succinct on those things. I mean, that's a, that's a much longer discussion because we could talk about that for hours, but like, yeah, but so I mean, it's, it's so that's why that's, that stuff is, it runs so rampant through this film, but a lot of people don't pick up on it or they choose to ignore it, but it is there. And that's, it plays such an important role in the, in what drives the narrative. Do you think uh, because this is where Mailer lived and he was so fascinated by this town that this is, why this is the book that he decided to make as a director, like, cause he's made a lot of books and he could have, uh, you know, adapted any of them at any point if he wanted to probably, but like, why exactly was this the book, the book that he kind of was forced to write initially? Why is that the thing that stuck with him to then be like, I now must make a movie version of that book. Right. Yeah. I think, well, you know, he had wanted to make a film again, after Maidstone, but effectively Maidstone sunk him literally from more ways than one. Like it was like, you know, he said famously that, you know, if, you know, if I was going to, if I knew how Maidstone was going to turn out, I would have just bought a yacht and sunk it because that was <laughs> you know, basically what happened. Right. I spent all this money and then nothing happened. So, so yeah, you know, he, because he saw his, a lot of his fiction as being film like, right. He, he knew right away from when he finished this book that he thought it would make a great movie basically so like it it, it kind of had for him it had parallels back to this book he wrote, he wrote this book in the early 60s uh, called american dream which in a lot of ways is analogous to this because it's yeah. about this guy that murders his wife and gets away with it that's the american dream right um so he's pretty he saw that as a film too back when he'd written it right so i think like, in a lot of ways making this was kind of his way of coming full circle right that he gets to finally make a movie and he's going to make it out of uh, this book, which is it's just so it's just so fresh in his mind at the time. Right? He's written it, and it, just before writing it, he spent all this I think summer rereading all of Raymond Chandler, and so he's he's got uh, film noir in the mind basically. So why not why not make this right? It's like it's perfect perfect material. I guess reading about his relationship with Provincetown, it's a mixed bag. He was in some ways beloved, in some ways. Not so beloved, I guess, from people yeah. who he headbutted in bars. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's also a good way to throw a lot of, you know, basically throw a lot of work and money at this town to, you know, yeah. make people who you headbutted <laughs> forget that and be like, yeah, you know, we did, we made a lot of money that season feeding the crews he ran into that wherever he went right because he had that not only did he i don't say he he didn't have that persona but like because of all the things he had written over his lifetime right and being how influential he was that you know he did run into that situation a lot where someone would accost him in a bar and try to start a fight with him because that that's who that's 
what they thought he was, right? But he, he really wasn't like that. Like, I mean, yeah, he he would he'd fight you if you know if he was drunk or whatever. But like, you know, he he never, he never was looking for a fight. He wasn't you know he wasn't uh, like that really. But he did run into a lot because people thought that's who he was, right? It was the it was the persona, uh, you know, exploring the persona in public, if you will. Yeah, it was like I mean, it was like a character to him in a lot of ways, right? Like like how he did the Irish brogue and and stuff like that. Like Maid, I mean, Maidstone is a perfect is you know, it is a film about so many things, but on the underneath it all, it is also a kind of a cubist portrait of Norman Mailer himself. Like it is, it's all these different characters and variations of Norman Mailer, whether that's the pugilist, the writer, the politician, the actor, all these characters are represented on screen in Maidstone. You know, even though it's just one person, effectively, he's portraying all these characters. So it's just a character for him, the way he used to express himself. And that's something I, you know, we didn't really talk about when we were talking about Maidstone, but I, I found it very difficult to watch the way that Mailer was treating particularly the actresses who he was auditioning. It was, it's setting off huge alarm bells and it took me about 24, 48 hours of like really wrestling with it to be like, yeah. And the guy who is making sure that that disgusting behavior is on film is the guy like, there is something uh there is something heroic about revealing the worst aspects of yourself i don't necessarily mean that it i don't actually think he's heroic in that role or in that right. film yeah. but i just wanted to give you a chance to like if someone watches that film they're going to come away from it thinking god norman mailer is a fucking prick fuck him i would like yeah. to see him hit with a hammer uh go uh <laughs> Someone should hit him with a hammer earlier <laughs> before he put his hands yeah. on that girl's ass. But right. Uh, yeah. But at the same Not. time, he's revealing himself. He's revealing the toxic masculinity. Yeah. And so you could say that there's something really powerful and important about this. But what's your take on that? Well, there there is a self reflexivity there too, right? You're absolutely right. Like, but I, I we I don't you know there is some concept that. Uh, you know, some of his harshest critics will issue, um, you know, they'll issue accusations of misogyny, right? And th- there, there is, to a certain degree, some of that definitely, right? But I, and I'm not trying to uh, apologize for that or, uh, you know, anything like that. But I'm also cognizant of the fact that that was he was a, a person of a particular generation who had a different viewpoint on social issues right and so but with that being said i can tell you um from spending time with his family and talking to his family and his kids and stuff that he i mean he loved he loved women right but he also he also you know i mean they were they were peers but they were also competition to him too right so it's like you know when he attacks someone in town bloody hall for example uh, part of it is a competition, right? So if he says something to Susan Sontag, or he's going to say like, she's, you know, Diana Trilling, she's, he's going to say she's, you know, Diana Trilling is one of America's greatest women writers, you know, it's like, cause mm-hmm. he's, but there's also the Andy Kaufman side of him too, right? Like he knows how to egg an audience, right? He used to have this really great joke. He used to stir, he used to stir the, the women, the women feminists with, he'd go on lecture tour, right? And he'd say like, um, 
you come up to an audience or come up to like a dais or whatever, like a microphone, you'd be like, all right, let's just, you know, let's get this out of the way. Let's, I know you guys want to boo me and, you know, cat call me and stuff. You hate me, right? So let's just get that out of the way right now. So why don't you just do that? And then the audience is like, boo, hiss, and he pause, he go, you're all obedient little bitches, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he, like, he knew how to, knew how to push people's buttons. He knew how to, to egg them on to create spirited discourse, right? Like, so, but yeah, I think, you know, with what he does in Maidstone is certainly, I mean, he's, I think he's, it's himself reflexivity, but he's also in a lot of ways uh, pointing a finger at how Hollywood treats, treats actresses, right? Because I mean, in a lot of ways, as experimental as Maidstone is at the end of the day, it is still in a lot of ways a traditional Hollywood film in that the sense that it has a traditional antagonist, a traditional protagonist. And it's structured in such a way that is reminiscent of a traditional Hollywood movie. I mean, there it, it, it has all the, it plays with reality and fiction. All this, all these. I mean, it's it's like an onion. There's so many, so many things. But no, it it's, a, it's an onion because it has all these layers. You just kind of watch over and over and over and over, like tough guys, and peel them back to get at what it's trying to do at its core. Yeah. Did he have? Was there anything he was going to make after Tough Guys, or did Tough Guys kind of kill him being a director? Like in his mind, was he done after this? Yeah, there was. Uh, so after Tough Guys, the only thing he kind of had in the works was he had in the fifties he had written this book uh, called The Deer Park, and it was really his take on Hollywood. And it was Deer Park is a story of these. Um, the film director and these actresses and it's kind of like um it's hard to explain but it's a it's a good book at the time it was not well well received but but he was always kind of obsessed with the story and he would often revisit over the years and rewrite it and stuff and it was a play in the 60s with rip torn in the lead and but anyways uh, at the end of his life um at the start of the 90s he was really hell-bent on uh shooting this shooting the deer park as a film and even at a point, Joan Didion got involved to write a screenplay. Um, never, I don't think it ever panned itself out to my knowledge, but he eventually decided, well, you know, what I want to do is I want to shoot it kind of like, um, have you seen, um, I'm sure you've seen this movie. It's a Louis Mal uh, Vanya, uh, Vanya on 42nd Street. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Kind of like, okay, it's like a play on a stage. It's filmed. Yeah. I think Mamet was involved in writing that. Probably. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. but he, so he wanted to do the deer park that way. He wanted the stage to play. And film it while it was on the stage, and that would be the movie, right? But they never could. They tried for years and years to get the money, and they can never, ever, uh, never get it off the ground. But I mean, he always kept his feet in film, right? Even though he was not directing, like over the years, you know, he he had a collaborator named Larry Schiller, who uh, did the Executioner song with him, the film, and um, sort of a, a legendary photographer, ambulance chaser, in some ways. <laughs> So that you know, he was always helping Schiller write screenplays, and you know, he in the '80s he uh, got involved with Sergio Leone, and he wrote the early drafts of Once Upon a Time in America, and uh, there was all kinds of film stuff. Mailer did no, Mailer did, yeah. Wow, he wrote the first draft for Once Upon a Time in America, but yeah, but he never it never got used, and it just they were him and Leone were just going in different directions walked away from it and then it ended up suing Leone to get paid for it. But yeah, he wrote the first draft of it. Um, and uh, then uh, just, there, yeah, there's a lot of stuff, film treatments, ideas. He was always, uh, you know, he always loved movies. He 
always loved films. He loved watching. Um, he loved Twin Peaks. He loved David Lynch. Um, yeah, he was. I mean, he was, but for him, it was it was you know it was art art, but it was also a way of observing culture. Because you know, kind of the '80s and '90s roll around, he had really taken with his with his age getting up there, he had really kind of taken a back seat, right, to being sort of a commentator, right. So, but he still stayed in touch with it and still tried to, um, you know. But I mean, at that point, it was you know there were so many other crazy, there's so much other crazy shit happening, right. It was like you know writing about the Gulf War and all this stuff, right. But it was always an interesting film, film up to his dying breath. We haven't really talked about Isabella Rossellini in this film, mm-hmm. and she is definitely the linchpin, if you will. Uh, <laughs> uh, her and Angelo Badalamenti, I feel like, make it so that there is a very strong Lynchian feel to this. But... Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think? Anything we want to say about her performance? Well, I can. I, I think her. I think she's in like so many. I mean, I can say that every character is important in the film, but she is important because of the character, because she is Mailer's kind of alter ego to a certain extent in the film. Um, because you know, the lines she's giving, she is. I talk about this in the commentary a little bit. Um, she is uh, foreign. American born in the story and so she is uh, able to give us as an audience an outsider's perspective on the narrative as we're watching it unfold and so she's Mailer's voice in the sense like that she's often common she's often creating a commentary on the kind of absurdity of the scenario right like I think the the most important scene um which, which exemplifies that is, you know, the car crash scene in the movie, right? Where she's, she's like, this, this country is crazy. I'm crazy. We're all crazy. You know, it's like, this is, this is Mailer's direct comment on American, this American sickness. Like this is, there's something to be said about like, you know, why we're, we're all in pursuit of hedonism. We're all in, I mean, in a lot of ways is, is a godlike view. Right. But we're, um, we're all kind of in pursuit of something. Right. And so um, it, it, you know, it's it's her it's his way of reflecting also his views of the American dream as well right because he always said America was like a marriage right it's like or well he said it was like a woman he said you know it's like half the time you love it and the other half the time you want to throw it out the window you know so he's like that was the way he that was the way he approached marriage and women and that's the way he that's what he thought of America he's like you love it half the time half the time you want to just say let's leave it right <laughs> Brian you're married is that do you uh do you I've uh, never thrown a lady this, out the window uh, point of view. But I have wanted to throw America out the window, maybe more than half the time. Uh, You're supposed to just pause and say, I haven't thrown a lady out the window yet. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and it, even the characters' names, our main character is Madden. They're mad, and, 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 and Madden, Madden family. Madeline, mad. right? So it's a continuous verbal echo. He was, he was really akin right. to those kind of things, verbal echoes. It's like a lot of that stuff appears in his lit- his, his literature as well. You yeah. see verbal echoes appearing throughout. So Madeline, Madden, Madeline. Yeah. So, are there other aspects of the film that we feel like we need to give some some love to here? Uh, I think. I mean, if you've been listening this long, it's pretty clear <laughs> you've got three major fans of this film, and I hope you've watched it yourself, and that you also are a fan of this film. Uh, speaking to the listener. Um, but uh, 
I, I think we, I mean, we've, we've talked a lot about the David Lynch resonance, but uh, that's clearly there. Is there anything else that we, that we want to dig I into? I feel like I've this? packed everything, unpacked everything I got. Yeah. Um, well, I'll just say that the, the, the Patty, the, her, the rehearsal for her testimony stuff definitely made me think of Mulholland Drive, the, the Naomi Watts audition right. scene in that. Um, the music from Angelo Badalamente, it's funny, I, the feeling I got was very East of Eden kind of mm-hmm. feeling, like that kind of melodrama. And it re- the score really made me think of that, of the East of Eden score. I don't know if that was an intentional homage or if that's just the way Badalamente wrote, writes or was writing at that time. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I know that they didn't he and Mailer didn't work too closely together on it. Um, I see it's interesting because I, I tend to hear remnants of like psycho and stuff in the score. I listen to can I hear huh. things of psycho and like the, the stabbing and you hear that and, and occasionally listen to the score of raw. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, Mailer always said, yeah, you know, Tony owes me money. He always called him Tony. Wasn't has got this facade of being Italian or he's really just Mailer called it like he saw him. Right. He was definitely, in, he was in New York, New Jersey guy himself, born in Long Branch, right? So it was, it was he had that definitely that mentality for sure. But of the the guy, the, the, the Jersey guy, the New Yorker trying to. Yeah. yeah. So but I, I think, I, I, I don't know. You know, I think that over, I think over time, I think in a lot of ways this film is ahead of its time. I, I feel like it's still yeah. ahead of its time. Um, but I feel like, you know, it's only going to, as years pass, I feel like more people will discover it and, you know, begin to appreciate it. I mean, just with the, you know, with the, the recent Blu-ray, I've seen, you know, people reviewing it on YouTube or whatever for the scene for their first time that have fallen in love with it. And I think, you know, as, as, as time passes, um, you know, more people will come to appreciate it, but I, I don't, I definitely don't, uh, the only thing that's important to me, I think, is I don't want it to be solely equated as being some sort of David Lynch ripoff, because I feel like in a lot of ways, it's not a David Lynch ripoff. It's not even an homage of Lynch. I feel like they're just two no, artists I don't feel like that, at all. that share a similar point of view in a lot of things, which is why they were friends. And I, so I don't, I don't want to say that Tough Guys is any way whatsoever is influenced by David Lynch. I think it's the other way around. I have a feeling that David Lynch watched this and it was inspired to kind of add more things in his later stuff. Like, cause like you said, I don't think if clearly he didn't see Mailer didn't see blue velvet when he was making this, you know, until after, cause it wasn't really available to watch. It just, there's just like a weird dance, I think between him and Lynch around this time with how they're viewing America and kind of these, these weird little towns and these communities and like how they deal with their secrets uh, but I think if I think it works the other way, I think Lynch was inspired by Tough Guys Don't Dance to add things later. So when we talk about all this Lynch's episode, we're not, I don't think at all implying that Norman Mailer was inspired by David Lynch. I think it's a weird just thing in the universe. And also, I think it's the other way. Yeah. Yeah. I would go even further in that they're both if they're if they're both artists who are working in film, who have a mystical sort of Mm -hmm. concept of life and of films being like dreams, then if they're both sort of tapping into Mm -hmm. that level of the unconscious, 
And whether it's intentional or not, right. working with some of the same collaborators, then you're they're basically they 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 don't need to be inspired to be basically yeah. making the same movie, attempting to make the same like they're both dreaming on film and doing it as again as artists first filmmaker working in a medium that is cinema as opposed to a filmmaker like thinking of themselves yeah. as yeah i'm a filmmaker and that is my art that these are intuitive artists making intuitive choices and sort of blindly mm -hmm. landing on yeah. the same square in a way because yeah. like with the the heads buried in the ground and the ear and like there's just so yeah. much connective tissue that it just feels like there are these two artists dreaming in different places and you could do like an ESP research on them and they'd be like, oh yeah, they're yeah. dreaming the same images. I think, you know, I think, well, I think a lot of it too is, you know, there's an, like I said, it's, it's an interesting divide between uh, audiences and filmmakers, right? They're, they're very rarely on the same plane of existence, in my opinion. And so, um, you know, I think the filmmaker approaches something like an ear in the ground is not just being an ear in the ground, but it has several meanings, you know, and I feel like for Mailer, it's the same way. Like, you know, it's a, it's a, I mean, it's like a literary device, you know, it's a literary device that's transposed into film. Right? We, we present an image or an object and it has a multi multitude of meanings. So I feel like you can feed into whatever you want, but like oftentimes an ear in the grass there's, for a lot of people, ear in the grass is just ear in the grass, but for other people watching it, you know, it could it can have a multitude of different meanings. I feel like they're both kind of thinking about, um, you know, the images images metaphor for sure as as artists. And uh, I only have a very limited time left, so I just but I wanted to ask you about one other thing. Do you mind, Brian, if I use up our last few minutes here? Uh, yeah, I have a question too, though. Okay, so uh, I'll be quick. So, just you—you were one of the founders of a podcast that inspired this podcast, and uh, that I'm a huge fan of in the projection booth. And so, I just want to first just say thank you for helping to bring that to to the world. And uh, yeah. is there anything you know? Can you tell us anything about the 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 auspicious beginnings of that, uh, I think probably I, it is the best film podcast out there. And just in terms of wow. how much work, uh, goes into every episode. So I'm a big fan of everything he knows. Of course, of course you did. <laughs> no, it's just, you know, I don't know. We just, I met Mike many years ago when I lived in Michigan and we just, we were on a road trip one day to go film festival. We were talking about it and decided to give it a try. And I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm just, uh, you know, I was only on the show for, I don't know, the first 30, 40 episodes or whatever, but I'm, I'm a much different uh, person and thinker than I was back then. Uh, you know, a lot of ways I was doing that show just to have fun, you know, like a lot of the, goofy things I was trying to do were just out of fun and entertainment purposes where, you know, now I'm, I'm approach things a little bit differently, but I mean, I, I do realize and the impact that I do realize that the show has a following, I should say, and I know what people listen to it, and it's only grown in the aftermath of uh, me leaving. And I can only tell you that that is a hundred percent Mike White and his dedication and devotion 
to that podcast and you know his obsession with it really and uh he's i mean he's really the one that's responsible for it i had very little to do with it can we uh, if you were going to send listeners to one episode from those first 30 or 40 that you're particularly proud of would what would you recommend people they're all out? awful i wouldn't send they're anyone all to terrible <laughs> okay so so check no, them all I out know. i mean <laughs> i mean i you know a lot of the ones i, I guess it's just an example of what, we, what i was trying to do is if you listen to the you know, the warriors the episode about the warriors yeah because we tried to you know well we did a couple of fun ones we did a, a day the clown cried one where we released this like a april fools i love that band. and we did the warriors where we tried to convince uh every listener we were in new york disney locations and i spent like many many weeks tracking down audio loops and sound effects from new york like from the subway announcer to the sounds of a particular street like I was like, you know, looking up, like, let me go to a sound effect website and find like, oh, this is morning sound on 72nd Street, right? And I was just pairing and looping all these sound effects to the point where it, people were actually, you know, people, a lot of people did actually believe we were there. <laughs> Little uh, War of the Worlds. Yeah, nice. <laughs> and so, yeah, so I mean, that was the kind of fun I was having. I do it differently now today, but. Uh, cool. Brian, what's your question? So. I, the the last question I have. Uh, so you have this commentary on the Blu-ray of Tough Guys Don't Dance, because I remember you tell me about it like a few years ago or a year ago. But then when it came out, it's not listed on the special features at all. So I assumed it wasn't on there until last week. You're like, it is on there. They just didn't advertise it. Why is that? Can you talk about that? It's a good question. I'm not 100% sure. All I know is that like it was released and I saw the cover art and I said, well, how could they forget that commentary? <laughs> it seems like pretty odd that they would, like, they should shoot your graphic designer seriously. And um, yeah. So then I emailed the guy and he's like, no, no, it's still on there. It's like, we have to, we have to submit all extra features to the studio approval. And they basically asked us to take your commentary off, but we decided we would just kind of leave it on there. Um, and the only way we could leave it on there was, keeping uncredited on the artwork because we thought it was such a good commentary. And so I was like, yeah, okay, but that kind of screws me over, whatever. Why did they ask you for it off? Because I feel it is a, it, it's a great commentary. It's very insightful. And it's, it's, I think it's, I don't know. I don't I get it. They never gave me a valid reason. I, I'm, I don't, I don't know. Only thing I could think of is that maybe because I had swore on it or because I had talked about <laughs> homophobia in the film. I don't, I don't know. Who knows? I felt like I didn't, interject any kind of personal things and no. I stayed true to the ideas in the film and what and what Mailer was trying to do in the film and so I don't I'm I'm a little befuddled by it too but whatever. I mean it is what it is. I just know I'll never uh work with them again. I've done several <laughs> I've done several commentaries since for other companies and it's just a whole different experience working with them and I'll definitely I mean I'm happy that they released the film. I'm happy that you know I'm happy that it's getting to an audience a new audience that will see it for the first time and appreciate it. And that'll effectively cause it to grow. But yeah, I was really disappointed with the overall experience working with them. So um, I'm sorry that you had to go through that. So is there anything that you would like to promote before we say goodbye, anything you're working on now or anything you want to draw people's attention to? No. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't have, I don't have social media. I don't have LinkedIn. I don't have Twitter. I don't have Instagram and on Facebook. Like I'm kind of off the grid and I keep it that way for a reason. Good job. Uh, I am working on, working on, working on a movie at Showtime right now. Cool. Yeah. 
working on the next book and some commentaries about it. Great. And yeah. is it still easy to find copies of your mailer book? Is it still in print? So, yeah, it sits out there. You can get it in uh, hard copy, uh, paperback, and Kindle or ebook version. Yeah, it's out there. Cool. Well, sure. I just to- I just just throw throwing this out there. You might want to check where you uh, keep your marijuana out in the Truro woods because. <laughs> Just saying, you might want to go check that out. Listen, I have had the weirdest experience in this movie. I, you know, I've not only have I been to Provincetown and spent a lot of time there, but I've actually stayed. Uh, the actor that plays Steve in the film, Stephen Morrow, I've actually stayed with him in a hotel room in Provincetown for a week, and it was the most bizarre. <laughs> ever. I've, wa- I've walked to Jetty in the movie. He rewardly walks Tim out, you know, with a gun, and it's just such a weird place but it, you know it just makes you love the film that much more cool cool thank you for doing this thank you this is going to yes. be our our first episode of season three so we're gonna we want to we wanted to start off with a film that is as ground zero for the world is wrong as any film could be so, <laughs> so thank you awesome for, for making it thank you yeah this has been great Hi, I'm Brian. And I'm AJ. And we have a podcast called The Director's Wall. Examining a filmmaker's career, film by film. First up was M. Night Shyamalan, then Francis Ford Coppola. Who's next? Is there anything to this whole auteur theory? Find out on The Director's Wall. Subscribe by Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred listening platform. Dear listener, If you are just discovering our podcast, you can find all of our episodes on our website at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can also write to us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at theworldiswrongpodcast. And now, back to the show. Eight notes scale an octave. Master the scale... And you master the score. Well, that was awesome. Yeah. No, that was a great conversation. He's, you were right, the right person for the job to talk about. Like, he knows more than we will ever know about this movie. And don't you have cool friends? (laughs) He's a great man. (laughs) Yeah. Pretty great. Pretty great. Uh, You, we didn't, uh, you didn't hear it, I don't think. But we recorded this on Zoom, and he did the whole thing holding this small dog in his lap and petting it like he was a Bond villain. Was... And the dog was very well behaved. It never made Incredibly a sound. Incredibly well behaved dog. I, yeah. Yeah. Maybe you should bring that dog to Texas to teach your dog some <laughs> lack of tricks. Uh there's are some tricksy dogs that they they were uh, featured on the, your recent episode oh, of the director's wall yeah yeah where you talked about the offer they they had uh they, they decided had... to make it a whole family affair that's cool <laughs> just Coppola like Coppola would, would yeah 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 um so uh there's a couple things that i didn't get to mention uh in the discussion that i wanted to bring up one i know that the film failed on almost every uh, measure of success other than it being great and are loving it. But it was so weird because when it came out, it 
that wasn't the impression I had. It was uh, there was a big picture of Norman Mailer on the cover of the L.A. Weekly, and it was the you know the L.A. Weekly at that point was a real sort of culture defined. It was pre-internet. Everyone in L.A. got the L.A. Weekly, and it told you what shows, what was cool, what was coming out. It had they did politics, they did interviews, and it really set the tone the cultural tone for LA for that week. And I think I still have that, uh, that LA weekly. Cause I used to save the ones that I thought were special and I'm going to dig around and try and find it. If I can, I'll put the image of it on the, uh, podcast page on our website. Uh, but it's, uh, anyway, it, I just want to, there was a brief shining moment when, L.A. and Hollywood thought this <laughs> film was potentially a big deal. So that was one thing. And then the other thing I just realized, we didn't really talk much about Isabella, Isabella Rossellini when we were talking. I and mean, we sort of said, she's good in this. But are you a, are you a Rossellini fan? I mean, I, I like her in the movies that I like with her in it, but I've never, I've never been super... Like, I know there's people that go crazy for her. I think she's good, but I don't know. I've, like, I think her best role for me is in Wild at Heart because she's just playing like a more, there's something more mysterious and odd going on there when she's more of like this kind of, I don't know, just sort of like you're the frail lady or you're the lady that all these guys are being mean to. <laughs> like that's I'm less interested in it. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, she's she's a great actress. It's just yeah, everybody. I, it's just everybody else in this movie is working on such an, another level, and she's sort of like the one who's grounded, which makes sense. I think you have to have a person in this movie that is like sort of a normal person, <laughs> and those those characters I feel tend to be overlooked when everybody else is like working at eleven. You know? Yeah. Did you see the film she made with Guy Madden? Uh, which one is that? I think it might be like the saddest song in yeah, the world. Yeah, yeah, no, that is really good. Yes, I have seen is that. Is that one. what it's called? I think it's called like saddest music in the world or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that being really great, and I really like her in Big Night. Oh, of course, yeah. But in general, I yeah, she she always, and I think it's part of her strength as an actor is she just has an odd distance from her roles that keeps me odd and keeps me at an odd distance from her mm-hmm. as an actor. I never, I don't feel very much invited into that, into her character. It's uh, it's, it's always sort of like, I don't know, like it's a show. And sometimes, as you say, when it's, when it's well used, it's it, or when she is allowed to be weird or it's better, but uh, okay. We get, you know, we just want. I just wanted to make sure we did that. So, what's coming up next week, Brian? Oh boy, <laughs> long time coming. We are finally doing David Mamet's masterpiece, Red Belt. Wait, Red Belt? Red Belt. That, I've never heard of it. What is this? Is this, <laughs> this is a Mamet film? I thought he he did Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. It's uh, he did uh, mix martial arts drama uh, is <laughs> what kidding. it is. It's awesome. We both love this film. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's fantastic. Have you heard of it, World? I hope you have, because get ready, because we're going to be given this film and the films of David Mamet uh, a great deal of attention and love. 
Yeah. Not next week, two weeks from now, because that's the new schedule where we're coming out with episodes every other week in the hope that we may be able to avoid hiatuses in the future. <laughs> and also, it gives you more time to share it with your friends, actually reach out to us, communicate with us about the episode, you know, start a dialogue going on with, with, with the listeners. Yeah. You know, yeah. three years in, never too late to start. <laughs> <laughs> never too late to start connecting with an audience. <laughs> Uh, and speaking of which, if you want to connect with us, there's a few ways to do it. First of all, Brian and I both have other podcasts that we do besides this one. I am the host and producer of the Radio 8 Ball Show, the musical synchronicity show where we answer questions by picking songs at random and interpreting those randomly chosen songs as the answers to the questions. And there are hundreds of episodes that you can find at our website, which is Radio8Ball.com. That's Radio8Ball, all in one word, with the number 8.ball.com. Uh, and uh, wherever you find your podcasts. And then, Brian, you host The Director's Wall, where you explore a filmmaker's full filmography. Your first season was M. Night Shyamalan. And now you are deep, deep, <laughs> deep into the filmography the filmography of Francis Ford Coppola. Yep. You have me on as a guest. I don't know if that episode is out yet. I think it's it's if this is September and I think it is, then yes, it is out. Or it will be soon out. We're doing you joined us for the thing based on the John Grisham script, The Rainmaker. Great film. Great film. Uh, the world is wrong. About the Rainmaker. <laughs> of course, I know that uh, when we discussed it, you guys loved it. I loved it. <laughs> Let's hope. Let's hope. Uh, and uh, yeah, so it was It was great to be on the director's wall. I've been waiting patiently. I'm going to come back for Tetro because that's, yes, please. Yeah, that's the other one that I've been happen, sitting yeah. on that I really, really wanted, been wanting to talk about forever. But yeah. yeah. Uh, it was it was an honor to be uh, sort of uh, symbolically in Texas with you and AJ <laughs> to to drink the Coppola wines to yeah. uh, to really to get into my uh, my fascination with the films based upon John Grisham's work because I think yeah. they're all pretty much all great. It's like. He's like the anti-Stephen King. Like it was so hard for Stephen <laughs> to make a, St a good Stephen King movie for so long. People have figured it out by, by now. But his stuff was just like, bam, these are all movies. So, yeah, that was a that was a blast. And you can check it out at the director's wall where you find you, which you can find wherever you get your podcasts. And, of course, you have your own website. Is it just directorswall.com? That seems right. <laughs> check the show notes for the link because I care about this even if you don't and um, what's the deal with the apostrophe is it the director uh, is there an apostrophe in this is it the director's director apostrophe s or director's s apostrophe or is it just the plural <laughs> director's wall it is the the director's wall. So it is the it's the apostrophe there because it is the wall for the directors. 
So it's so an apostrophe it after the S. After the S. Yeah, it's Not all the directors. It's their wall. This is the director's wall. Okay. It's not the I, wall with the directors on it, which would be just the director's wall. <laughs> now, this is their wall. This is their wall of their films that they are looking at. The directors have their own wall. Okay. I, it seems more like your wall <laughs> and you put the directors on it. I don't want to get into a trading places, <laughs> trading places situation here. But it feels like whenever I try and type it up, I, it's, it's always confusing to me. Where does, where, what am I doing? Is there supposed to be an apostrophe here at all? But, you know, obviously the, the great success of the show puts any of my misgivings about it well in the rearview mirror. We have a website, www.theworldiswrongpodcast.com. I find it very troubling that when you type in the world is wrong, we don't come up as fast as I as we like. You have to type in the world is wrong podcast, and that is annoying. But you know what? The world is wrong. So <laughs> yeah, it's what we got to deal with. You can find us in uh, on a, a couple of social media platforms. You can find us on Instagram at the world is wrong podcast, and on Twitter at world is wrong pod. And just in case uh, you're new to to this, Brian handles the Instagram for the most part. I handle the Twitter for the most part. Well, entirely. Brian doesn't even want to look at it. He doesn't even want to hear. In fact, right now he's got his fingers in his ears. He's muted, but he's going, nah, 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 nah. Doesn't even want, doesn't even want to hear me mention the word Twitter. Uh, and But you can find us there at World is Wrong Pod. And we'd love to hear from you. Gosh, darn it. You know, yeah. uh, the total, we, we joke about it, but the real, the... I mean, we know you, you download it and you listen to it. And a few people who I know have told me that they've been missing it during our hiatus. But, uh, you know, we'd, we'd love to hear from you. Gosh darn it. You know, you could <laughs> just send us a letter. Send, uh, you don't send us a letter. Send us an email to contact at the world is wrong podcast dot com. And um, this episode, you'll you can find there's a whole page about it on our website at uh, www the world is wrong podcast.com and uh, there's pictures and uh, you know, there's all kinds of cool things to, you know, to see there. So check it out. Yeah. I hope you dig the new rhythm, the two week rhythm. I hope that uh, you enjoyed this conversation about this film as much as we did and uh, are ready to go into the world and defend this film with your life. <laughs> That's yeah. what it's going to take. Yep. That's what it's going to take. Yeah. <laughs> I had a friend who was over in the interim. They saw the DVD on my table and they were like, oh, tough guys don't dance. Should I check it out? And I was like, well, I think so. People don't like it, but I but I, I love it. And then he picked it up. He was like, underneath it was a DVD of two Jakes. He was like, now that's terrible. I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We get, we'll get to that in a few months, folks. But uh it was just it was just funny. I was like, well, I just like gotta know my tastes. I love the two Jakes and tough guys don't dance. So Yeah. Uh okay, well, um I guess that's about it. So unless you have anything further to say, Brian. No, I'm good. Then let's just remind the audience once again that wherever they are, the world is wrong. And it is probably wrong about them. Should you drink?
Six months ago, they told me to stop, or I was dead. I stopped. Now the spirits circle around my bed, and they tell me to dance. I tell them, tough guys don't dance. They answer me, keep dancing. Andras here. When I'm not co-hosting the World is Wrong podcast, I'm hosting and producing the Radio 8 Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tignataro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers from Inara George and Dan Byrne to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8 Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. Show. 